Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And good morning, everyone. It is Monday, November 14th, and we're going to right off the top again with some breaking news. There's a manhunt underway for an active shooter at the University of Virginia. Right now, the school is on lockdown. At least three people are dead. The shooting taking place at the school's main campus in Charlottesville. Students have been advised to shelter in place. Straight to CNN's Joe John standing by a block away from the scene. All right. Joe, this morning, what has happened? Don, three dead, two injured here at the University of Virginia. That, according to a statement from Jim Ryan, the university's president. It happened around 10.30 Eastern time, right down the street um, from here. This is across from the Fine Arts Building. The authorities continue their search for the suspect. The campus is in lockdown. Uh, People have been told to shelter in place and classes have been canceled for the day as the search for this shooter continues. Apparently, this was a student who police believe actually committed the shooting. Don? Johns, we'll continue to check back uh, in with you. That breaking news coming out of University of Virginia on lockdown after a manhunt for a gunman. Thank you, Joe Johns. I appreciate it. Tragic situation. Also happening right now, President Biden is meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali. It is their first in-person sit-down since Biden took office. Moments ago, the two leaders briefly spoke about what they hope to get out of this meeting. Listen. And uh, as you know, I'm committed to keeping the lines of communications open between you and me personally, but our governments across the board, because our two countries are, have uh, so much that we have an opportunity to deal with. A statesman should think about and know where to lead his country. He should also think about and know how to get along with other countries and the wider world. Let's go to our colleague, MJ Lee. She joins us live from Bali. MJ, great to have you there. So China and the United States obviously see each other. Uh, to say competitors is not to say enough. But Biden also made clear he doesn't want conflict. He talked about ways that they can manage. I think that was the word used, manage the relationship. What should we know? Yeah, Poppy, good morning. We are currently watching such a significant piece of history unfold in U.S.-China relations. The two leaders of these two superpowers have now been meeting for well over an hour here in Bali on the sidelines of the G20 summit. And you saw when the two men greeted each other, uh, there was a real warmth and almost familiarity that they expressed to each other as they talked about the fact that they've known each other for a number of years, the importance of their bilateral relations 
relationship uh, and the fact that they need to keep open lines of communication going forward. Now, this is all pretty remarkable if you think about the fact that this meeting is taking place at such a real low point uh, for U.S.-China relations, exacerbated in part by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan. Taiwan is just going to be one of the many very challenging issues that the two leaders are going to be discussing. And I should just note, we don't know when exactly we will see President Biden emerge from this meeting. U.S. officials have said that they have set aside at least a couple of hours for the two men to talk. Uh, but again, there is no time limit set on this important summit. And MJ, the expectations also seem to be pretty modest of what they're going to come out of this meeting with. I know that they're not expected to issue a joint statement. We will hear from President Biden at a press conference. But what what is the White House expecting when it comes to what they're actually going to get out of this meeting potentially? Yeah, Caitlin, you're absolutely right. Uh, U.S. officials have been pretty clear in setting the expectations ahead of time, telling reporters over and over again, uh, we're not going for a set of deliverables here. There's certainly not going to be a joint statement. And I just want to point out another sort of interesting dynamic heading into this meeting. You know, it is difficult to overstate uh, what a significant moment this is for the Chinese leader. Uh, This is his first time leaving his country during the COVID pandemic pandemic, as China, of course, has imposed severe lockdowns and restrictions. And U.S. officials had said that in and of itself had made it a little bit more challenging in recent recent years to get a read on Beijing and its intention. So hopefully they say this is one more opportunity and an important one at that for them to better understand exactly what these so-called red lines are that Beijing has right now on a whole host of issues. Yeah, absolutely. A very high stakes meeting. MJ Lee, we will stay with you this morning. Thank you so much. Well, this morning, Democrats are celebrating narrow Senate majority after victories in critical races in Arizona and Nevada. And they're hoping for another miracle. And that would be keeping the House. So let's tell you where it stands right now. Control of the lower chamber is still undecided. Right now, Republicans are in the lead, inching closer to the 218 seats that they need to win the House. Several races in key districts still remain uncalled. Thousands of votes remain uncounted, Poppy. And the uncertainty of control comes as Republican leaders in both the House and the Senate brace for tense talks after their party's disappointing election results. This week, they will hold a series of closed-door meetings to determine really an autopsy, right, what went wrong for them and what they predicted and decide the political fate of their current leaders. However, on the Democratic side, it's a little different. Speaker Nancy Pelosi says Democrats are asking her to consider another leadership bid should Democrats be able to eke out a win in the House? Big questions about what that could potentially look like. So we're going to bring in CNN's senior data reporter, Harry Enton, to join us. You know, Harry, this was once unthinkable mm. that we're even having this conversation on the Monday after the midterm elections. How many races are still uncalled in the House? And what are you watching this morning? Yeah, so let's just sort of lay out where things sort of are and sort of the uphill climb that Democrats are sort of facing, right? So if we just look at the districts right now, not just where we projected a victory, but also where uh, different candidates are leading of the different parties, what you see is that Republicans are up in 222 districts to Democrats 213. Now, obviously, we're not there yet where we can project a Republican win in the United States House of Representatives. So let's kind of go through the math and give you an understanding of why it can be sort of 
potentially difficult for Republicans to lose that lead and for Democrats to kind of come back. But we'll start off with sort of the easiest of the easy seats where Democrats can gain. So this is California House 13. This is one that we discussed on Friday. Uh, you can see here that Adam Gray, the Democrat, is down by well less than a percentage point. He's down by just 84 votes. When we spoke on Friday, he was down by about two points, well over in, in the thousands of votes. So this is an easy type of district. But then it gets significantly harder from there. So we'll go to California's 22nd district. David Valadeo is up by five percentage points with about a 3,000 vote lead. When we spoke on Friday, that lead was eight percentage point. But look here, just 39 percent of the estimated vote in. This is the type of district that back in 2018, this old district, it wasn't numbered the 22nd, but Valadeo was running. He held a lead until about a month after the election. I'm not saying we're going to be here for a month. (laughs) I hope not. But this gives you an idea that we might be in for the long haul. But then let's go to Arizona one, because I think this really gets at why it's so difficult for Democrats to make up the ground that they need to in order to take back the House. You can see here the incumbent David Schweikert is ahead. And you can see now that there's 96 percent of the estimated vote in. When we were speaking on Friday, Schweikert was trailing. He has gained and gained and gained as more male votes have come in from the district, the first district of Arizona. So it's not just about Democrats gaining back districts that where they've been trailing the entire time. It's about holding on to the leads in the districts that they currently have. And this is an example of a district where they weren't able to do that. Yeah. And so as we're still waiting on the House, you know, the big news over the weekend was on Saturday when we called and Mm -hmm. said that Democrats are projected to hold the Senate. That is such a big decision or a big factor into all of this. People are still watching Georgia to see what happens there. Tell us the difference in if they have the majority as it stands right now or if they get Georgia and they have that 51 seat majority. Yeah, you heard, you know, President Joe Biden saying, I really want that first 51st seat. And you can see there's a block of text on this chain. Perhaps, you know, this early in the morning, I'm not sure you can necessarily read it. (laughs) But uh, what essentially it is. When you have a tied United States Senate, it basically slows everything down. And you need these discharge votes that essentially are needed to get a full Senate to vote. And it it takes hours of debate. And this is especially a case when you're trying to run through judicial nominations. And there are a lot of them that are out there. It just slows the pace down. Having a true majority lessens the chance of a tie. It speeds things up and also important for Democrats. There's less reliance on moderates like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema. And so it just makes things significantly easier. This is a line that the White House loves to see because, of course, that has been one of the biggest thorns in their sides in their years in office so far. Harry, thank you. We'll be checking back with you to see what's going on in the House. Up next, we do have Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who is going to join us live here in studio. We'll tell you his reaction to Democrats maintaining Senate control, whether or not they are going to potentially control the House and where the party's agenda is right now. Comedian Dave Chappelle saying that he denounces anti-Semitism and stands with the Jewish community as he hosted Saturday Night Live this weekend. We'll tell you more about the monologue that everyone is talking about. One of the things that, that, I, that I don't like about the current environment is that I think there is a lot of division. I think that people use conflict as a tool to achieve their own ends. I don't think it's a good tool. Well, that is Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. He's sounding off there on division in America. More from the CNN exclusive interview straight ahead. I denounce anti-Semitism in all its forms. <laughs> And I stand with my friends in the Jewish community. And that, Kanye, is how you buy yourself some time. That is comedian Dave Chappelle. 
leading his SNL monologue with Kanye West's recent anti-Semitic comments, a comedian also referencing Kyrie Irving, the NBA star who was suspended by the Brooklyn Nets for comments after sharing a link to an anti-Semitic documentary. Here's more from his monologue. Kanye's gotten into some scrapes before. Normally when when he's in trouble, I pull up. I pull up immediately. But this time I was like, you know what? Uh, Let me see what's gonna happen first. Let's see. Well, I've been to Hollywood. No one's y'all to get mad at me. I'm just telling you, I've been to Hollywood. This is just what I saw. It's a lot of juice. Like a lot. This is the rule, you know, the rules of perception. If, if they're black, then it's a gang. If they're Italian, it's a mob. But if they're Jewish, it's a coincidence and you should never speak about it. I know that Jewish people have been through terrible things all over the world, but, 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 but you can't blame that on black Americans. You just, you just can't. Early in my career, I learned that there are two words in the English language that you should never say together in sequence. And those words, are the and juice. I've never heard someone do good after they said that. Well, that did not take long for, well, this didn't take long for the head of the Anti-Defamation League to respond, Jonathan Greenblatt, writing, we shouldn't expect Dave Chappelle to serve as society's moral compass, but disturbing to see SNL not just normalize, but popularize anti-Semitism. Why are Jewish sensitivities denied or diminished at almost every turn? Why does our trauma trigger applause? Let's bring it to the conversation now. Let's start it, at least, with CNN anchor and correspondent Audie Cornish. Hello to you. Hey, how are you? I'm great. You had to know it was going to cause some controversy. So what do you... Which was the point, right? Obviously, he was trying to show this is what it's like to walk some sort of line, some sort of rhetorical line. Everything about it was constructed to play act out the idea of cancellation. Mm-hmm. You think it was more about cancellation, sort of bringing people's um, attention to cancellation rather than, because this is what I heard from um, some of you know Jewish folks, friends I know said, I didn't think it was a big deal. He walked really close to the line, he straddled it and others were offended by it as Jonathan Greenblatt was. Um, but the, the question is, if you're not offended by other things like comments about the trans community, even Dave Chappelle's own comments about the black community, then how can you be, would it be hypocritical to be upset about comments about the Jewish community? I don't want to police how people hear things because people have the right to be offended and jokes always have a person who is a victim of the joke. That is a fact. Comedians, of course, are currently struggling with the fact that those victims can now speak out and back. And so they are accountable for the laughter. Um, But, you know, Chappelle has this very sort of... um, He's on a pedestal in terms of his position in the culture. SNL puts him on after big elections. And his show, The Chappelle Show, was known basically for straddling um, the line with a kind of spiky commentary on race, etc. I think the, the problem right now is that he's sort of dragging into the limelight a kind of 
black strain of anti-Semitism from the 90s, but he's not reckoning with it with the same precision that he does with, say, Trump voters. So earlier in the monologue, you didn't play it, but he spoke about um, the the appeal um, of Trump to certain voters who uh, he called Trump an honest liar. The idea that Trump somehow was exposing political and economic um, sort of uh, imbalances and exploitation that he could take advantage of that the average person couldn't. So he was like, hey, everybody loved that Trump said X, Y, and Z and exposed X, Y, and Z. With that, he's like laser precise. I know. That really stood out to me, too. Yeah. And then with the anti-Semitism, to me, it's just sort of like he's... To give an example, way back when he talked about the Chappelle show being canceled, he did this, um, not being canceled, I'm sorry, when he took a pause from the Chappelle show and walking away. You know, later he told Oprah that one of the things that sort of bothered him was at one point doing a skit where he was in blackface, you had to be there, and um, a white crew member laughed a little too hard. And he said, you know, I was worried about being socially irresponsible. I was worried about that laughter. It is very strange now to see him all these years later not being worried about that laughter, not taking that same care. Just quickly, the question, though, is, is it culturally productive? Because they're saying he's starting a conversation, but... Uh, no one needs to start a conversation about anti-Semitism. Been around for a minute. I think we all know the, the points of it. I think that you have to ask yourself, um, is he exposing some sort of cultural truth to your ear or is he whitewashing, echoing, amplifying really toxic ideas and laundering them through his own reputation as a comedian? Is he making is he excusing what Kyrie and Kanye West said or did? I almost think that's not the point. You know, he's uh, obviously it, for the jokes. It's easy for us to focus on those things. But we're reckoning broader. We're, we're reckoning with anti-Semitism more broadly in the culture. And this is a very specific cultural platform. And I think how we hear it is in that context. We can try and make it little like it's about Kyrie. It's about Kanye. It's about this. It's about that. Really, it's about are we back to a point where it's OK to talk in this manner in every sector of public? Public life and not expect there to be a social penalty because mm. the thing he's complaining about cancellation which he has not experienced right still on SNL still having selling out venues Netflix totally fine the employees who complained got fired he's fine but the thing he's complaining about is the social penalty for saying something that people find to be inappropriate and that is going to happen to you no matter what as long as you're a comedian well and he made the point about we need to be able to talk was kind of I don't know what his exact quote was, but that was kind of where he was going in that part of the monologue, was saying that people are too scared to say anything, essentially, these days. And ask yourself, do you feel like you could say anything in that room? Is that starting a dialogue? Do you feel like, you know what I mean, that that sparked anything other than, oh, no, not again? Um, I think there is a way, maybe, um, to try and do what he did in the past, which is to needle us all in these sensitive places where we could be doing better. I don't know if he's doing better. And talk about scared. Even now, I'm sure if I say something that annoys him, he'll do what he did in his monologue, which is reference some woman news commentator by calling her the B word. I thought about that. What's that supposed to be? You know, this is not a person who is prepared to have dialogue, in my opinion. It's a person who's doing what he does, monologue. I wonder what you think about two things. One, the moment. 
this moment where there has been a huge increase in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic attacks and attacks on Jewish people. And secondly, you know, I can't sit here and pretend I know what it's like to be Jewish and listen to this. I mean, one of my Jewish friends wrote me after this and said, you know, the takeaway here isn't that anti-Semitism is wrong. It's that it's pu- publicly voicing anti-Semitism is wrong. That's a horrible takeaway. I mean, right? we can't walk in. But we also shoes. don't have to be Jewish to understand how toxic that is. You know, I think if you, if, you, if you have to sit down with a child and explain the joke. Right. And you find yourself being like, oh, I don't want to repeat any of this. Probably a problem. Do, you know, do you want to convey the idea? Do you to the agree next with that? that the, if not, don't. Do you agree with that, that the overall message wasn't that anti-Semitism is wrong or it's that, you know, well, publicly saying these things is I wrong? Know. This is the problem with yeah. racism and anti-Semitism and these isms in general, I think it was Toni Morrison who said, it sort of forces you to spend time talking about it instead of doing the work you are meant to do. So I am not meant to try and excuse, understand what Dave Chappelle is doing as an artist. I I think what I'm trying to reckon with um, as a person who also watches politics play out in the culture is why are we laughing? And when is it okay (laughs) to just be like, I don't want to laugh at that you know, without being called like a bummer or wet blanket or whatever, politically correct. It's okay for some of us to say, that's not funny. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing, and I know we have to run, is that what is the difference between, because there's a difference that folks will say, and we did this um, the last time that he did SNL, the difference between social commentary and comedy, but the thing is he comes wrapped in as a comedian. Right? Yeah, and it's That's a dance a lot of comedians yeah. play, especially the last few years where they've been posing as news anchors. So we're going to see it a lot. Thank you, Adi. Yeah, thanks Very for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, right now, Ukrainian President Zelensky in the liberated, again, liberated city of Kherson. Remarkable what has happened there as CNN is on the ground talking to people who survived the Russian occupation. Plus, a Democrat in Washington state beat her Trump-backed opponent and flipped a key House seat that hasn't been held by Democrats in a decade. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. As difficult as it is to accept the results, there is no other course but to concede, which I do, and I look to the challenges ahead. Josh Shapiro will be our next governor. That's Doug Mastriano, one of the leading voices pushing former President Trump's lies about the election, now conceding his race for Pennsylvania governor. That was four days after CNN projected that he lost to Democrat Josh Shapiro. A few hours before Mastriano actually acknowledged his defeat, Dana Bash asked Josh Shapiro about how long it was taking him. I mean, who cares if he calls, right? Uh, You know, he doesn't get to pick the winner. The people pick the winner. Had he won, Mastriano would have gained the power to appoint the state's election, raising concerns given his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. He had also questioned Pennsylvania's election security. Voting integrity. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I've seen better elections in Afghanistan, not hyperbole. Doug Mastriano is just one of a number of ardent election deniers and questioners who in key battleground states were rejected by the voters. That includes several candidates who ran for post with critical powers over elections in their states that were expected to be competitive in 2024. Nominees for Senate, Governor and Secretary of State, like in Arizona with Mark Fincham. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we know it, and they know it. Donald Trump won. President Trump and I lost an election in 2020 because of a rigged election. I've been working since November 4th, 2020 to expose what happened. And what I found out is horrifying. And when I'm Secretary of State of Nevada, we're going to fix it. That's Jim Marchant of Nevada. He heads the America First Secretary of State Coalition, which is a group of election deniers who were trying to get state election posts. But he lost. And with his loss, all but one of those America First candidates were defeated. And if you've got election deniers serving as your governor, as your senator, as your secretary of state, as your attorney general, then democracy as we know it may not survive in Arizona. That's not an exaggeration. That is a fact. In Arizona, the governor's race this morning is still too close to call. But right now, Democrat Katie Hobbs is currently leading the Republican Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake's path to victory is growing more challenging with the batches that came in in recent days. Lake, of course, put false claims about the 2020 election at the very heart of her campaign. I consider someone's vote their voice. I think of it as a sacred vote, and it's being trampled the way we run our elections in Arizona. I've been sounding the alarm for two years. Lake has repeatedly said she would not have certified President Biden's win in Arizona in 2020. If she wins, she would be in a position to do more than just talk on television about reversing the election. Well, a really surprising victory for Democrats in a Washington state district that few saw going blue. Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, an auto shop owner, will be the first Latina Democrat elected to Congress in Washington state. It's an unexpected win for the party. She flipped a district that has been voting red for more than 10 years and one that former President Trump won by four points just two years ago. She will succeed Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler, who you'll, you'll remember her because she was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump after the insurrection. Butler was believed to be a strong incumbent for this race until she became a target of former President Trump. Glusenkamp Perez instead defeated Trump-endorsed Republican Joe Kent in that state's third congressional district. Kent has been outspoken about his support of MAGA policies and far-right figures like Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. He's also downplayed the January 6th attack and pushed conspiracy theories about the coronavirus vaccine. Here's what he said during a debate. This was in September. We can never allow our economy to be locked down again by the dictates of our leaders who are acting like tyrants. So never again to government-mandated lockdowns. Never again to government-mandated vaccines. That can never happen. We need to bring back everybody who's, who lost their job because of a vaccine mandate. Bring them back with full back pay. I will not sign off on the National Defense Authorization Act until we bring back the service members that were kicked out for refusing to take the experimental gene therapy vaccine. Well, Congresswoman-elect Marie Glusenkamp-Prez joins us now. Congratulations and good morning. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so in reading the press coverage of this, a lot of a lot of stunned, I think, journalists, too. The Seattle Times this morning called your projected win, well, not projected, your win, quote, perhaps the most stunning political upset in the country this year. Was it that stunning to you? 
You know, I know my district. I know that we don't believe in these crazy ideas that Kent's espousing. He, we don't want to defund the FBI. We don't feel that we should have a national ban on abortion in southwest Washington. You know, Joe Kent was talking about banning all immigration to reestablish a white majority. I don't know anybody who believes that's the right course for America right now. You have talked about not being an ideologue. And what you campaigned on really throughout was that you're not a, quote, typical candidate for Congress. A lot of people say that when they're running, and then when they get in that building, they change. No, Poppy, she owns an auto body shop. I know, She's it's not, awesome. Like, that's not typical. That's it's awesome. awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know. But tell us what that means in terms of how you will legislate. How will you be different? Well, I mean, your, your priorities are different. The way that you live, you know, I live on a gravel road. I get my water from a well. I get my internet from a radio tower. I mean, that changes cool. the way that you look yeah. at the world. I am one of the working moms that can't find daycare. I've brought my baby to work with us at the auto shop. I mean, that yeah. changes who you are. That changes your priorities. And I think that, you know, we need to start electing people who really look like America, people yeah. that um, are worried about putting gas in the tank, worried about their grocery bill. And, and that changes how you look at bills. Yeah, for sure. The race was still pretty close, though, Congressman-elect. And so I, I, that is a question that I'm walking away from this with is given how close it was, you talked about rejecting election deniers, rejecting extremists. What is your takeaway from from that vote total and where and the people who did vote for your opponent, Joe Kent? Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of folks um, just kind of do the RRD sort of analysis, and I am so grateful to the folks. We, we were endorsed by so many moderate Republicans and independents and, and Democrats, and I'm so proud of building that coalition. And I think that's the direction that our politics needs to move more generally, where we're not just looking at the R&D, we're looking at whose values match the district, who has the, the life that looks like my life. And that's how we change politics. It's, it's not just by going down the party line. And I'm not coming to Congress to be a cheerleader for any political party. I'm, I'm here to be an advocate for my district. And I'm, I'm thrilled to have that, that honor, that opportunity to do that work. Are you surprised that Joe Kent has not conceded the election? Last time I checked, he had not conceded. I'm not. You know, he has said repeatedly that he will honor the results of the election. You know, we live in an all uh, vote by mail state. And so it, it's going to take some time to finish counting all the ballots, doing the ballot curing. Uh, but at this point, the, you know, the, the numbers are clear that there's not a, a path. So um, I look forward to a smooth transition when he does concede. Do you think it's, you know, Democrats have gotten a lot of guff lately for not relating to, right, the working class folks. You are a Democrat. You said you'd like to see more, so I guess, bipartisanship. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but stop looking so much at the R and the Ds. But do you think it's time for, this is time now for Democrats to sort of take back that narrative or actually learn, if it is true, if you believe it's true, to learn to relate to working class folks? Yeah, you know, it really feels like folks that work in the trades, um, rural Democrats, it feels like we're a dying breed. And it's it's critical that if we, if we want to be relevant in those spaces, Democrats have to stop explaining things to rural people and people who work in the trades and start listening. Hmm. Um, because we know we know things that, you know, other folks might not know. And, and we feel overlooked and not listened to so often. Um, it, it's, it's time for Democrats to really reevaluate how they are operating in these spaces. Can I ask how old your kids are? Or child? And I, yeah, I have a 15-month-old at, oh. at home with my, my husband who's winning dad of the year right now. And you ran yeah. It's a lot. I was going to say, are they proud? They'll be proud when they can talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I'm so fortunate to have had the community support to do this because it really did take a grassroots effort to do this. Yeah.
If I lived closer to D.C., I'd bring in my old 87 station wagon. For, we'd love, for yeah, you. we'd love to see it. <laughs> I might do it anyway. I may just drive down for you. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Thank you so much. Congratulations. We appreciate you Thanks coming so on. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, we're going to talk about Jeff Bezos now, opening up in a CNN exclusive, what he said about the state of the economy and giving away his money. And a multi-billionaire loses his entire fortune in a single day raising questions about the future of the crypto industry and what might happen to him next. Now to a CNN exclusive interview with our very own Chloe Malas. In a wide-ranging interview, Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, is opening up about politics, philanthropy, and the economy. He and his partner, Lauren Sanchez, also tell CNN they're writing a $100 million check to the legendary country singer Dolly Parton to help her advance her own charity work. Watch. Talk to me about choosing Dolly Parton. Well, uh, look at what she's done and and how she's led her life. And the way she's done it, these bold things, always with civility and kindness. She's a unifier. You know, we have big problems in the world. And the way to get big problems done is you have to work together. We have too many examples in the world of conflict and people using ad hominem attacks on social media and so on and so on. You won't find Dolly Parton doing that. And when you think of Dolly... Look, everyone smiles, right? And all she wants to do is bring light into other people's world. That's all. And so we couldn't have thought of someone better than to give this award to Dolly. The nation is very divided right now on many issues. Do you think that the American dream is something that really is still attainable right now? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I think the American dream is, uh, is and will be even more attainable in the future. Look, one of the things that, that, I, that I don't like about the current environment is that I think there is a lot of division. I think that people use conflict as a tool to achieve their own ends. I don't think it's a good tool. We see sometimes in our political sphere certain politicians criticize other politicians. They criticize their motives, their character. They call them names. Once you've done that, it's hard to work with somebody. And that's why we created the Courage and Civility Award, because we want to highlight people who don't do that. And we wanted to amplify their voices, you know, because we, the voices that are really negative seem to get amplified in this world. You know, when you go and you look at your net worth, it's too much money to even spend in a lifetime. Do you plan to give away the majority of your wealth in your lifetime? Yeah, I do. And, and, and the hard part is figuring out how to do it in a levered way. It's not easy. Um, you know, b- building Amazon was not easy. Um, it took a lot of hard work, a bunch of very smart teammates. And I'm finding, and I think Lauren's finding the same thing, that philanthropy is, is very similar. It's not easy. Uh, it's really hard. And there are a bunch of ways that you, I think, that you could do ineffective things, too. So we're building the capacity to be able to give away this money. How do you decide where to put your efforts? There are so many places where you know, philanthropists and anybody who wants to uh, donate to charity can put their money to work. I feel like you have to do things at two timescales. You have to work on the urgent, the here and now, the immediate, and you have to work on the long term. So the Bezos Earth Fund is sort of about this, it's a, it's a 10-year commitment to work on uh, these really big problems that we have on sustainability and conservation and restorations. The day one fund, where we do work on the here and now, the urgent food security, homelessness, transient homelessness. There's all kinds of uh, very er important problems in that arena too. 
Talk to me about this team that you two have built together. That's a good word. We're really great teammates and we also have a lot of fun together and we mm-hmm. and we love each other. True. So I love how we work together. We always look at each other and like we're the team. It's easy. You know, we bring each other energy. Um, we respect each other. Uh, so it's it, it, it's it's fun to work together. Let's bring in our own Chloe Malas, who sat down with the two of them. It just goes without saying it is so hard to get time with them. So the look, fact that you're the one they chose to sit yeah. down with says a lot. Thank you. Well, look, it's the first time that we've heard from them together in four years. And it was the first time ever since they first came out as a couple in 2019. Um, and, you know, he doesn't really give sit-down interviews. And it was all pegged to obviously giving Dolly Parton this $100 million grant Friday night at a private event at his home. He's previously given one to our own CNN, Van Jones, Jose Andres. Um, but we did talk about potentially buying the NFL commanders, the Washington commanders. And we did talk about Lauren wanting to go to space with an all-female crew. So this was a very wide-ranging interview at their home in D.C. that lasted over 20 minutes. Yeah, and of course, he's one of the wealthiest men, one of the most powerful men in the world because of, of course, what he has built at Amazon and other entities. He has been fretting about the economy. He has been speaking out. He's clashed with the White House on what he Mm -hmm. believes are the real issues. What did he say to you about where things stand and his view? Well, look, he he recently tweeted batting down the hatches. So I wanted to know, what is your take on the recession? Are we in one? Take a listen to what he had to say. We are in some tough economic Mm. times. Some people say that perhaps we're already in a recession. Do you think that we're in one? And what is your advice for small business owners? I, I, I don't know whether we're technically in a recession. I know economists argue over that and they have certain technical definitions. What I can tell you is, uh, the economy does not look great right now. Things are slowing down. You're seeing layoffs in many, many sectors of the economy. People are, are, are slowing down. Um, the probabilities say if we're not in a recession right now, we're likely to be in one very soon. So my advice to people, whether they're small business owners or, you know, is uh, uh, take some risk off the table. If you were going to make a, a purchase, maybe slow down that purchase a little bit. Keep some dry powder on hand. Uh, and, and, and wait a bit and see how. Try to reduce some risk in your, uh, in your business or your life. Well, you tweeted batten down the hatches. Mm-hmm. That's what you mean by That's that? That's what I mean. Let's see if you're an individual and you're thinking about buying a new you know, large screen TV, maybe slow that down, keep that cash, see what happens. Same thing with a refrigerator or a new car or whatever. Just take some risk off the table. If you're a small business, maybe uh, delay some capital purchases. Do you really need that new piece of equipment? Maybe it can wait a little bit. Have some cash on hand. Just a little bit of risk reduction could make the difference for that small business uh, if we do get into even more serious economic problems. So you got to play the probabilities a little bit. Any idea in terms of what you're hearing or just with your expertise as to how long this recession could last? I don't think even the most uh, experienced economists in the world can answer that question. It's a very challenging thing to try and estimate. So I think you have to, you just have to try and uh, be reasonable about it, take as much risk off the table as you can for yourself. You know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. So you heard Jeff Bezos right there say that if you're looking to make some big purchases to maybe 
think twice about it for right now um, to keep some powder on hand, he was saying. And then, you know, we're in the midst of a tech recession with all of these layoffs in the industry. And it's a really uncertain time. And, you know, we also got into other things, like I said, in space and what it looks like with their on their Saturday night and how they fight over what movies to watch. And so later in the day, we'll we'll show you some more. You know, what's interesting. And you were talking about, you know, sort of the buzz around him. I saw him and Lauren at um, the portrait gallery mm-hmm. unveiling with Clive Davis. So you have all of these people in the room. He's at the top, top, top of the celebrity uh, CEOs. Not that he's a founder. But who was in the room? Marion Edelman Wright, Jose Andres, Venus and Serena Williams, Hillary Clinton, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Clive Davis. You know who, I mean, people were focused on them, but you know who had the biggest buzz? Tell me. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. I mean, he did go to space. Yeah. Yeah. that too so, on top and, of everything and, and, else and it sounds like like i'll say again that she's planning to go with an all-female crew in 2023 so yeah. there you go yeah. oh, oh thank you for that nancy pelosi too oh she there was a big buzz around yes her as well. and of thank course you. you can watch the full interview on cnn.com i know yes. that is something everyone wants to to see what he says since it is so rare that he sits down to speak with reporters really thank great you. interview chloe thank, thank you really chloe. all right it is not what people want to hear just the week before thanksgiving but the tsa is now admitting that it messed up letting a passenger on board with box cutters. We'll tell you how the TSA is responding today. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, the TSA is reviewing its security protocols after a man was led onto a flight with two box cutters. When he went to go to the bathroom, the passenger in the window seat looked at me and said, hey, like he has a knife. And he told me that he was threatening to stab people. We need to go say something. So that plane was forced to make an emergency landing in Atlanta. We want to go to CNN's Pete Montine. He joins us now live from Reagan National Airport. Pete, hello to you. What happened here? It's so interesting, Don. You know, this incident initially happened on this Frontier Airlines flight. But the big question is how did these box cutters get through security at TSA? This incident, I'm told, has been kicked up to the highest levels of that agency. And the TSA is admitting some pretty big failures here. It says that it's reviewing the tape from the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport at the security screening facility there. One, this man came through, not yet been identified. He came through with a temporary license and put two backpacks through the screening equipment. The TSA says that equipment did not catch these box cutters. Then those backpacks were screened physically by TSA agents. And this is where it gets really interesting, Don. The agents found one of those box cutters, but they gave the box cutter back to this man. That is against the TSA's own procedures, typically discarded. The TSA also admits that that second box cutter simply was not discovered. Now, the screeners involved here, the officers of the TSA, are going back for remedial training. They've been pulled from the line, according to the TSA. There will be a statewide retraining on that specific equipment. And there is a nationwide alert going out to all TSA officers about this incident. This is nine days from the big Thanksgiving rush done, especially important since box cutters we know were used by the hijackers on 9-11 as weapons. This is a really big breach here, Don. They gave it back. Wow. Pete, thank you. Appreciate that. Straight ahead, a manhunt is underway for an active shooter at the University of Virginia, who police are looking for, plus this. Listen to that. 
CNN is on the ground in a newly liberated Kherson, along with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. More ahead. Happy Monday morning to you, everyone. Good morning to you. Good morning, Good morning. to you. It is morning. Monday, November 14th, and we're talking about politics. We still don't know. We still don't know everything, but Democrats will keep control of the Senate. But what about the House? This morning, Republicans appear to be inching closer to a majority. A major sit-down also currently underway overseas. What could come from President Biden's meeting with China's leader, Xi Jinping? Also right now, police are searching for a shooter this morning after three people were killed at the University of Virginia. There's a massive manhunt now underway. We're also live in Ukraine's newly liberated city of Kherson. The people of this city tried to resist the Russians. The Russians suppressed them. This is what Ukrainians are like when that suppression comes off. We are live on the ground in Ukraine, but first we are going to start with that high stakes meeting between President Biden and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. It is their first in-person sit down since Biden actually took office. It's happening on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali. So let's talk about none better than CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger, who's also a White House and national security correspondent for The New York Times. David, good morning and thank you for joining us. You know, I wonder what you are watching ahead of this summit as this meeting between Biden and she is underway right now. Well, Caitlin, good morning and uh, great to be on uh, the new show with all of you. Um, I have to say that uh, this meeting has a lot of high stakes to it, even if you don't hear a whole lot of specific deliverables at the end. The leaders of the world's two largest economies have never met as president. They've talked on the phone. Partly that was because of covid but partly, Caitlin, that was because of the spiraling relationship, spiraling downward between the U.S. and China. And we are at the point right now where the relationship is probably the worst it has been since Nixon did the opening to China in the early 1970s. That's 50 years. So I think what we're looking for on this, uh, out of this meeting is some understanding of what floor the two of them are willing to put under it, mm -hmm. a little bit about Taiwan, on which the president has spoken quite uh, aggressively in, in recent times, saying that the United States would, in fact, come directly to its defense, different from the way we have dealt with Ukraine. And I think from China, some sense that uh, the expansion of their nuclear arsenal mm -hmm. is something they're willing to discuss. David, your piece uh, is, is great laying all of this out this morning in The Times. But this line struck me in particular. You wrote, whether it's a partnership of convenience or a robust alliance, Beijing and Moscow share a growing interest in frustrating the American agenda. Talk about that as this meeting happens. You know, I think one of the least discussed parts of this, Poppy, is the fact that we have seen over the past few years a deepening of the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. There are a lot of people who believe that, in fact, those two countries do not have a lot in common and really can't bring themselves to form a true alliance. But we had a very senior member of the Pentagon tell us last week that, uh, in fact, he thought the alliance was coming together. 
And that has big implications for our nuclear deterrence, for our operations around the world, for the future of uh, Russia's confidence as it uh, uh, stays in Ukraine or leaves. Mm -hmm. And it also, Poppy, I think has a big implication for whether or not the United States has to think about defending itself quite differently if it thinks it's facing a joint uh, Russian and uh, Chinese force. So that's going to be a, a big subject along the way. President Biden told me in a question I asked at the, the press conference last week that he did not believe the Chinese had much respect for Putin. <laughs> this is really about uh, occupying two superpowers, occupying space uh, in the world, coexisting. And just another uh, quote from uh, your piece. You said, this is, a, a, this is, in a sense, the first superpower summit of the uh, Cold War version 2.0, said Evan S. Medeiros, sorry, Medeiros, the Georgetown professor, uh, university professor who was President Obama's top advisor on Asia-Pacific affairs. And this is a quote I want. Will both leaders discuss even implicitly the terms of coexistence amid competition or by default, will they let loose the dogs of unconstrained rivalry? That's really the question. And what do you think it will be? Don, that is the question. And for the past two years, it has been the unrestrained rivalry. You've seen the United States try to cut off China's sources of uh, technological supply for the most advanced semiconductors, saying this is mostly about their ability to build uh, uh, weaponry. But we know that that goes to the larger competitions of the future, quantum computing, uh, artificial intelligence and so forth. We've seen China be far more aggressive, particularly on territorial issues. You saw what happened around Taiwan after Nancy Pelosi's visit. Mm -hmm. They're trying to set new facts on the ground and at sea to keep the United States pushed back beyond that first island chain uh, and to make sure that, that it's China that really rules the Pacific. So we're at a pretty critical moment and having a three-way competition Russia, China, and the United States. That's something we haven't seen before, Don. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We're watching it so closely. And just the fact that she is more powerful now than any Chinese leader has been in so long. David Sanger, we That's know you'll right. be watching it closely. We will hear from President Biden after he leaves that, that meeting. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Caitlin. This morning, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise visit to the newly liberated city of Kherson. This is days after they were able to force out Russian troops that had occupied it. This weekend, fighters returned home. Families were reunited, including this soldier with his grandmother. Watch. And that say everything. Our Nick Robertson is live on the ground in her son. Nick, that singing, that singing that we heard and all of the people behind you. This was, I'm sure, unimaginable to them for so long. And it's still hard for it to sink into people here. People, and I've been talking to them again today, 72 hours after that liberation, they still feel that they cannot really show their true emotions, particularly those who've been beaten by the Russian troops. And there were plenty of those. President Zelensky said he was here to send a signal that he wanted the people of this city to be able to reconnect with the rest of the country. They put up a temporary cell phone tower over here to help people get connection with loved ones in the country. But literally in the last few minutes, it's a truck. Uh, it's going to be a little bit hard for our cameraman Clayton Nagel to get round to here, but you'll see a big blue truck. It just pulled up here. That big blue truck is the first humanitarian aid to be coming into this city. 
it is much needed. There's celebration here, but there is still coming out of the darkness of Russian occupation. <laughs> the joys of Herson's liberation keep on giving. How are you, she says. I survived, her friend replies, but the Russians kicked my door in and stole everything. This city, once home to more than a quarter million people, is still celebrating its freedom, but beginning to count the cost of the eight-month brutal occupation they endured. The city's phone and internet connection cut, residents crowding around soldiers' communications in desperate hope of contacting loved ones. On their way out, the Russians crippled almost every vital service, electricity off and water too. This pump close to the riverbank, giving water too polluted to drink. The water stopped when the power went off, he says. This is the fourth day without water. But what can we do? We need to survive somehow. The Russians even felled the city's main TV transmitter. They blew it up just before leaving, a final act of punishment for a population that until days earlier they said was part of Russia and would be forever. That same message, Kherson and Russia together forever, plastered on hundreds of billboards around the city, is already being torn down. Why, Platon says, because eight months of occupation is not very nice. I didn't feel very good living in fear that any moment a car could pull over near you and bring you to a very unpleasant place. Alexander was unlucky enough to be taken to one of those unpleasant places and shows us around the jail he was in. Says the Russians beat him daily. They abused everyone, kept us hungry, used us as free labor to repair their military vehicles, he says. They were beating us whenever they wanted. This is where they say Russians kill people for simply shouting out Slava Ukraine, glory to Ukraine, or having tattoos saying the same thing. And over here in this room, this is where they used to torture people. The fire, Alexander says, started by the Russians as they left to cover up their crimes. But it is across the road in Katerina's church, Russia's oddest brutality was perpetrated. The grave of Grigory Potemkin, fabled in history for building fake villages, was looted days before the Russians left. Father Vitali takes us into the gloomy crypt, shows us where Potemkin's coffin was stolen from. He lay here for 240 years, through many wars, he says. We honored him as a founder of Kherson, and they took him without permission. Repairs of Souls and City have only just begun. 
And some of that beginning, well, Clayton's going to pan over now to that blue truck and already look at the people gathered at the back of that humanitarian truck here. There is no drinking water in this city. There is no electricity. There is a shortage of food. People, the water they have is polluted, as we said in that story. It is very difficult for people here. So it's no surprise for me to see them gathered around the back of this humanitarian truck to come into the city to see what it might offer them. Yeah. Uh, Nick, the winter is upon us and them, and that's going to impact the war. It, it certainly is. Uh, the war is literally, this town is now on the front line, of course. The Russians are only just across the river. You routinely now hear barrages of outgoing fire. We were down at the river earlier on today. You can't see the Russians on the other side, but they're dug in. It seems that the winter perhaps will freeze the lines here, but it's going to take some time. The Ukrainians here, President Zelensky said, we're moving forward. When he was here today, he said, we're moving forward, moving forward. That's still the message. They want to take more territory. But for sure, the winter is going to be brutal and hard here. At night, it's sub-zero temperatures. Oof. Again, this city doesn't have heating. It gets cold here at night. Yeah. Wow. Nick Robertson, we are so glad you and your team are there. Thank you for that remarkable reporting. And we have new video this morning showing the moment that an explosion ripped through a packed street in Istanbul. <laughs> A major pedestrian thoroughfare. The attack killed at least six people. It has injured more than 80 others. Turkish officials say that the incident is a terrorist attack. And the Turkish president, Erdogan, is vowing to punish those responsible. Police have detained 46 people, including the suspected bomber, a Syrian woman who they say entered Turkey illegally and trained with Kurdish terrorist groups. Officials say they have surveillance footage of a woman sitting on a bench for more than 40 minutes before leaving a bag behind just before the explosion happened. So far, no group has claimed responsibility. We are still waiting on more details. This is the deadliest attack in Turkey in more than five years. And here in the United States, there's an urgent manhunt at the University of Virginia going on. Three people were shot and killed. A gunman believed to be a student is now on the loose. And an entire campus is now on lockdown. We're going to get right to CNN's Joe Johns in Charlottesville for us this morning. Joe, good morning to you. What's going on? Good morning, Don. This University of Virginia, just a sprawling place in Charlottesville, and it is awash in police this morning as they continue to canvas the campus in search for a killer. The university president, Jim Ryan, put out a statement this morning saying he was heartbroken to report three people dead, two injured. Those people, of course, now being treated as the search continues, the shooting occurring around 10.30 last night, Eastern time, just down the street from where I'm standing. Authorities say that they have locked down this campus. They've told people to shelter in place. Classes have been canceled for the day as the search continues, not only for that suspect, but also for the vehicle he was driving, a black SUV. Don. So, Joe, uh, again, talk, can you talk to us more about the suspect and a possible motive? Um, we're hearing, you know, sort of conflicting information about who he is, his relationship to the school, and, and et cetera. Right. Well, we don't have a lot of information about the motive as of yet, but what we do know is that this individual is... His name is Christopher Darnell Jones, Jr. He is said to be, according to the president, a student at the University of Virginia. And also, uh, we believe he was on the UVA football team, at least in 2018, although it's not clear 
whether he played in any games. So there's certainly an association with the university and specifically with the athletic department, the football team. Joe Johns joining us from Charlottesville, Virginia this morning. Thank you, Joe. All right, this morning, Democrats are celebrating their narrow Senate majority after weekend wins in Nevada and Arizona. But a number of House races still undecided, a lot of them in California, which is fascinating, too. So the Democrats had a steep climb to maintain the majority. It's getting steeper, almost but not quite vertical at this point. <laughs> right now, in the races that have been called, Republicans, we've called 212 for them, Democrats 204. You need 218 to control the House of Representatives, which means Republicans would need six, Democrats would need 14. There are currently 19 uncalled races in the House. Let's look at where those 19 races stand. Republicans lead in 10. They only need six. Democrats lead in nine. They need 14, which means if you look at this map, Democrats need to hold every blue seat here and flip five, five of these red seats to blue. Is there a path? Is there? It's tight. It's very tight. Maybe, but it's getting, as I said, more difficult. Let's write that number five. Let's look at California very quickly. The two most promising races from Democrats where they're still trailing are California's 13th. Just 84 votes, votes separate the two. Only 46 wow, percent. 84 votes. Right. There's room there. Yeah. They could win there. Here, California's 22nd district, almost 3,000 votes, but only 39 percent in. It's still possible there. Let me just write that down for you here. So if you're being optimistic in giving both those seats to the Democrats, that's two. Can you get three more? That's where it gets very, very hard. I want to look down here to California's 41st congressional district. 4,000 votes separate the two, but Saturday it was 2,000. The lead for the incumbent, Ken Calvert, is growing. Only 59% in, but going in the wrong direction for the Democrats. Where Democrats' hearts might get broken is Arizona, okay? Quickly, in Arizona's 6th congressional district down here, again, John Siscomani, his lead actually grew a little bit last night, going in the wrong direction for Democrats here. 93% in, 1,700 votes separate them. This is the one that really is bugging Democrats this morning. You can see David Schweikert, the Republican, only 894 votes ahead. Uh -huh. But going into the weekend, the Democrat actually led in this district by 4,000 votes. And a lot, 85%. 85% in, votes reported last night. Flip that, and now you have David Schweikert ahead by some. So you can see you're sort of stuck nationally at these two seats. They would need three more to get there. Not impossible, right. but challenging for the Democrats. Where's Pima County? Pima we County. Have you know one of their I'm going to show you the governor's on. race here. Yeah. I'm going to show you the governor's race here because this is super tight. Yeah. You can see Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, 2,600 votes ahead. Pima County is very important in this race, too. Pima County is right here. You can see Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, with a big lead there. There are still 40,000 votes to be counted. She's been getting 60% of the vote in Pima County. That could expand her lead. I'll just give you one number to leave you with here in this governor's race. Okay. Carrie Lake would need about 58% of the vote that's left. 170,000 votes or so left. She needs 58% to overtake Katie Hobbs. She hasn't been getting it in Maricopa last night. She got about 55%. And in Pima County, she only got about 40%. So a steep, steep climb 
for Carrie Lake. Almost vertical. Not Almost, vertical. Maybe vertical a in a few less, hours. A little bit less vertical, but <laughs> steep. Thank you, John Berman, very much. Guys, uh, ahead also, we're going to be joined by the Senate Minority Leader, Chuck Schumer. Majority. He, majority Leader, thank you. He will be here live with us at the table on CNN this morning. And still ahead, this story that is blowing all of our minds, a cryptocurrency empire imploding, the founder and CEO losing pretty much all his fortune in one day, taking a lot of other folks down with him. What do you need to know? How does this apply to you? Ahead. Plus, the red wave that had been predicted did not happen. We'll have Frank Luntz here to explain how pollsters got it wrong, what can be different going forward. Got some explaining to do there, Luntz. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So everyone, uh, put down your coffee and listen to this, or take a sip. I just want you to listen because this is where America is right now, and this is an inconvenient truth this morning, is that voters have shown that America is over-indexing on MAGA and extremism. And voters have stepped in to push pause on the attacks against democracy and America in a historic repudiation. For example, voters rejected a candidate who called the insurrectionists who attacked America on January 6th political prisoners. Also, with so many election deniers on the ballot this year, integrity was also on the ballot. 26 of them lost their races, many of whom beat out moderate voices in the primaries, who potentially could have won seats for Republicans in the general. The noteworthy part here, the rejections include pivotal secretary of state races, races, the winners of which will exert considerable power over how their state's elections are run. Also, many of the candidates who lost are, or are in jeopardy of losing are Trump-backed candidates who adopted his anti-democracy lies. And many hinted that this was a problem for Republicans' chances in the elections. Yeah, I think the... the there's a, probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Um, candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. So now what's the outcome? More Republicans are in full self-reflection mode, wondering whether hitching their wagon to Trump and the election lies, whether that was such a great idea. Uh, this is a time that Donald Trump is no doubt in the rearview mirror. And it's time to move on with the party. It's time to move on with candidate quality. It's an opportunity to reassess what Trump's role is inside the Republican Party. And are people willing to stand up rather than caving in on him? You know, I think Governor DeSantis is the biggest single winner of the night. And he will almost certainly become uh, the rallying point for everybody in the Republican Party uh, who wants to uh, move beyond President Trump. So I want to be really clear here. Election denialism is still alive and well in America. Protesters gathered in Arizona this weekend to protest and cast doubt on the legitimacy of the electoral process there. Why? Because their candidate is losing. I, I believe at this point we need to just have a new election at this point. And we need to do paper ballots and we need to do it all in one day and be done with it. We can't expect. We, it, it's an absurd notion to sit here and play this charade and act like after this counting that we won't have tainted results either way. But democracy is not a static thing as we know. It lives and it breathes and must constantly be defended against those who would destroy it. We're still a young country. And make no mistake about it, on November 8th, millions of Americans went to the polls and they did exactly that. 
a lot of folks got it wrong. So how did the pundits <laughs> and the poll watchers get this election so wrong? One of them, you see right here, is Mr. Frank Luntz. And he tweeted out uh, on election eve, he said, this is what he said. He said, when the dust settles from the 2022 midterms, the GOP will have between 233 and 240 House seats uh, outdoing their total from 1994. Republicans will also take control of the Senate. So let's bring in now the poster and communication strategist, the man behind that tweet, and Mr. Frank Luntz. I've, Good morning. I, and I've acknowledged it in, on tweets since then, and I don't see any pollsters showing up. Where the hell are you? Well, you are. So what <laughs> happened? How, why, how, how, how did so many people, including you, get it so wrong? And as I said in the beginning there, we tend to over-index, and we've been doing it for since 2016, over-indexing the MAGA part of the electorate. There is a fear that they did not include enough Republicans in their samples because we knew from 2016, 2018, and even 2020 that Trump voters tended not to respond to pollsters because they thought that the results would be used against them. So there is an effort to, as you say, over-index this time. That's number one. Number two is that people came to the polls and they finally decided enough is enough. About eight, nine percent of the public changes there. They come in undecided, and they have to decide what they're going to do at that moment. And they come in, potentially, wanting to vote one way, and they end up voting the other. The thing that the wait, Republicans... Wait, wait, what do you mean by that? Where they come in, and they think, I'm going to vote I'm going to vote Republican, Republican, and then they go, and they have to decide, do they actually pull the ballot, or do they want to make a statement by voting Democrat? 8% of the population comes in, huh. and they may change their minds. And third is that the independents, and this is where the Republicans have to take very close an uh, analysis to, the independents usually break 55-45 Republican. If they break 60-40, Republicans win. In this case, they broke 50-50. That's a real problem for the GOP. It's a, it's a major drop. And one more. Yeah. Republicans actually got 5 million more votes for the House than the Democrats. 5 million. So why don't the results show themselves mm -hmm. in the congressional races? The answer redistricting, mm -hmm. that it had a bigger impact against the GOP than anybody realized. And you could not know this until Similar, On a bigger, larger scale, what happened here in New York? You brought up independence, right? And uh, one of the splits I saw was 49-47. You said 50-50, but we get the gist. The Wall Street Journal editorial board this morning writes, the message couldn't be clearer. Independent voters in swing states may be unhappy with the direction of the country, but they didn't trust the GOP enough to give them power. They go on to say that party will have to adjust its policy on abortion and its message for 2024. You can never ask people to adjust their policies based on elections. Sometimes principles, sometimes principles are more important. And you have to be able to convince the American people that even if they disagree with you on that principle, you are worthy of their support. So I challenge their changing their position. That said, they have to accept that if they're going to be that strict on abortion, they're going to turn off younger voters, which voted overwhelmingly Democrat, mm -hmm. and they're going to turn off women, which voted significantly Democratic. That, and that's the way it is. There are times when you don't follow the polls. There are times when you look to people straight in the eye and you say, enough. I hear you. I know where you stand. I'm simply against it. But then accept what happens to you on Election Day. Since you mentioned young voters, okay, let me make this point, please. Pardon me just before, because so, I, I don't want it to get past. Um, I was, what a, a presidential advisor said, um, I was telling the POTUS the entire time that the streets were not saying what the polls were saying and that young people were coming out. Uh, that's a given. That's not so insight. I don't, I don't want to be critical of that person. 
Yeah, the young people were voting, but the young people still vote on a much smaller percentage than their parents and a really tiny percentage compared to their grandparents. So, so to me, I want to look forward. I want to take where we stand right now and focus on what it means over the next few weeks and next few months. Everybody is rehashing the past. And that's why people had enough of Donald Trump. He wasn't rehashing last week. He was rehashing what happened two years ago. We need to look forward. That's what the American people are asking of all of us. Okay, it's done. We voted. We have a really, really split government right now. Now let's move forward and see if we can get something I wanna, done. I want to get to the Trump aspect of this, because I know you just did a focus group this weekend with people about who they prefer. But on the polling, I think people do not trust polls right now. They, they did shouldn't. not trust them after 2016. But how do you fix it? I don't. You don't. We should, you, you the guys, polling is irrelevant. You is guys spend way too much time focused on who's going to win and lose and trying to predict that. <laughs> Isn't that what Dead you do? You're the a no, 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 I don't do that. I don't do that. I haven't worked in a, in a political campaign in more than a decade, I used the numbers that were given to me by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. And no matter what they it's say like, now, how can you say that? They, Your tweet just said before, I predict this person is this yes, super win. based super on win. their polling, okay. not but, my well, so polling. Then here's my question on that, which is because this is correct. People are saying, well, the media said this, the pundit said this. Democrats also thought they were not going to fare very well on Tuesday night. Now they're obviously happy that they did, but they were bracing for losses. How did their pollsters fix this? Is there any point in polling, essentially, anymore if you can't get it right? What a mm. great lesson to the media. Stop focusing on the who's up and who's down and start trying to understand why. Give us insight. Give us information that we can use. People watch this show because they're more informed by giving you their 10 or 15 or 30 minutes. They watch because they really care about what's going on and they want to stay up to date on all the events that are important. They're not asking you to project the future. They want to fully and completely understand the present. So let's go back to using polling for what it was meant to do. Insight, information, knowledge, and if you're lucky, wisdom. But you, you got to show that you got to show that focus group because that's what's we really do, important. We do because you spoke to these these are Trump voters. <clears throat> yes, all of them. And here's what they think about what they want 2024 to look like. But to me, he's a much more polished version of Trump. He's willing to kind of fight back and willing yes. to um, go after it, but he does it in a way where he doesn't degrade or um, say things that are just off-putting. That's We're talking about about DeSantis. Yeah. Yes, and, and almost every one of them. They all voted for Trump two years ago, and almost all of them would vote for DeSantis today. They appreciate what Trump did. They appreciate his agenda, but they don't appreciate him as a person. And they're actually worn out with him as a person. And I believe that if Trump goes ahead and announces tomorrow, he doesn't understand the world that has been created over the last week. And Trump's vicious, brutal attacks, not just of DeSantis, but also of the uh, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, the Republicans are beginning to say, OK, enough already. We insulted the racist. Yes, I, I appreciate all that you did. I respect what you went through, but go home. What what else did you learn? I mean, that's one of the reasons we love having you is because you'll be so candid about, you know, when I get it wrong, but also because you spend so much of your time speaking with these people. What else did you learn from that we did focus a, group that surprised you? We did a study for the American Conservation Coalition about climate. I'll give you an example. The Republicans seem to be hostile to climate legislation. 
the, the, the young people in particular and the party in general has to tackle climate. It doesn't mean that they have to go all in with the Biden proposal. It doesn't mean that they have to shut off uh, exploration for energy. But it does mean that if they don't respect and appreciate and make specific, tangible efforts on the climate issue, then the voters are going to continue to reject them. And it's not just climate. It's on the economy. It's on taxes. It's on the budget. It's on abortion. We saw that play in the election. Now, listen, we got, we're running out of time here before I go. So is this, everyone asks, is this Trumpism is over, right? Don, is Trumpism over? Is this the last gasp of Trumpism? This is Friday the 13th, part 15. Freddie always comes back just when you think he's done. <laughs> Jeez. So, also, so. didn't we just say we shouldn't be projecting what's going to happen? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We'll wait to see what the voters decide. Thank you, Caitlin. Oh, for winners, yeah. but I mean, if, if you look at the donors that are running away from him, if you look at the media, the Trump-supported right-wing media, the Murdoch media, who are moving away from Trump, I think that's a fair question. Is it, you know, are people just over it? Are they over it? They're over yeah. the language, the over the, uh, the meanness, the over the ugliness. They really, more than anything else, I'll give you one word to close this segment, unity. Mm. That is what they're looking for right now. And the more that we can help them achieve that, the, the better good we are doing. But again, we'll see. I think you're all right. We, we have to see what the voters decide. Thank the you. The kids are right. The who? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate it. Straight ahead, breaking down the dramatic rise and fall of one of the top cryptocurrency companies, what it means if you invest it. And former Vice President Mike Pence is calling out former President Trump's actions on January 6th. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. I want to show you something that's just in the CNN. Take a look now. This is uh, back in Ukraine to this dramatic scene in the liberated city of Kherson right now. This video taken moments ago, residents are getting humanitarian aid days after the Russians left. We have been seeing emotional scenes play out of reunions, families telling their stories of survival. CNN's Nick Robertson is there on the ground. We're going to go live with Nick in just moments. All right. He is being called the Bernie Madoff of crypto, a multi-billionaire who lost most of his wealth in a single day. This morning, the stunning implosion of the digital currency company known as FTX that is triggering new investigations. CNN's Bryn Gingras has live with the latest on Sam Bankman-Fried. Bryn, this story is fascinating, and I am obsessed with, with what's happening and where this is going forward. Yeah, I mean, Bernie made off now, but it was just really a few months ago when FTX's CEO was on the cover of Fortune in the magazine questioning if he was the next Warren Buffett. Now... As Caitlin said, his company has imploded and FTX at the center of multiple investigations. The disastrous downfall also shaking up confidence about the future of digital currency. In a matter of days, FTX, one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world, filed for bankruptcy. The company's 30-year-old CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, resigned and his $16 billion fortune erased. Bloomberg has called his meteoric fall from grace one of history's greatest ever destructions of wealth. Bankman Freed has publicly apologized. I'm piecing together all the details, but I was shocked to see things unravel the way they did earlier this week, he wrote on Twitter. Now, allegations of mishandling of customer funds have emerged. Two sources familiar with the matter told Reuters at least one billion in customer funds have vanished. 
Bankman-Fried secretly transferred $10 billion of customer funds from FTX to his trading company, Alameda Research, the sources told Reuters. In some ways, this collapse of FTX is the Lehman Brothers moment of the crypto world. Um, It is a classic financial crisis. The downfall of the crypto exchange began earlier this month when serious questions were raised about the financial health of the company. Those questions caused many customers to cash out. Then a failed merger between FTX and its rival platform Binance caused more strain on FTX. Binance backed out of its plans to acquire the company, saying its problems were beyond our control or ability to help. The Justice Department and SEC are launching probes into FTX, the company which is had headquartered in the Bahamas, is also being investigated by Bahamian authorities over potential criminal misconduct and the White House addressing the need for oversight. Without proper oversight, uh, cryptocurrencies, they uh, risks harming everyday Americans. But the most recent news further underscores uh, these concerns and highlights why uh, prudent regulation of cryptocurrencies is indeed needed. At its peak, the crypto exchange was worth $32 billion and benefited from superstar endorsements from Tom Brady, Giselle Bunchen, Naomi Osaka, and Steph Curry. I'm not an expert, and I don't need to be. With FTX, I have everything I need to buy, sell, and trade crypto safely. The NBA's Miami Heat had its venue renamed as FTX Arena just last year, but now that name's coming off the building. It even ran an ad during this year's Super Bowl featuring Larry David. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. And look, stakeholders losing big here. Investors and customers. Reports are those with money couldn't even withdraw from their accounts and may not recoup their money. The company now in Chapter 11, and it's possible. What comes next is Washington stepping in and finally passing regulations on this very much wild, wild West industry. So this is the next step, right? What's going to happen? How is Washington going to respond? But this story unraveling so quickly, as Caitlin pointed out. Yeah, I think Mark Cuban tweeted something interesting about it. He said he believes it's basically a same version of a different story that we're seeing right now. Thanks, Brent. Thank you, Brent. Thank you. Appreciate it. At least the Wild West has a sheriff. (laughs) (laughs) There's some sheriff. You know her. Let's talk about (laughs) that. (laughs) With our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, there is no sheriff. And one of the things, you know, when you think we brought up Bernie Madoff, when you think about sort of cash and assets being stolen and lost, it's hard to get people in back, but it's not impossible. Crypto makes that even harder. Well, it's invisible. I mean, crypto is, is this invisible currency that's not a currency, that's an asset that is uh, not regulated at all. There are no regulations on crypto. And for a long time, people said crypto was, uh, you know, it was a hedge against inflation. Well, no, it's not. Um, it is not a vehicle that you can measure value with. It is a speculative tool. And there are a lot of people who put a lot of money in on the next big thing. Everyone's going to get rich in crypto. And you've seen that it is, a you know, the billionaire boy wonders, especially this one, don't appear to know what they were doing. Yeah. But can you talk to us about what set up this downfall? Because a lot of people have said, actually, you could see this coming. So he was sort of an altruistic hero, right? A progressive champion. He was one of the big donors of the midterm elections. You know, he was giving to to, um, liberal causes for the Democratic election. He's been at the White House. He's been at the White House. He's somebody who everyone thought, wow, this guy really, you know, this guy really knows what he's doing. And he's been called the next J.P. Morgan. 
Ironically, J.P. Morgan also spawned a whole bunch of regulation as well. So maybe in that sense, um, he is that you're going to have, you know, Washington coming in and trying to regulate him. Essentially, he was running this exchange, also running a hedge fund. And the allegation here is that using the cryptocurrencies in his exchange in the hedge fund and then this started to unravel when people found out about it and thought they wanted their own cryptocurrency back. And then there's essentially an old, an old style run on the bank. We made a comparison. I mean, he's not it's not it's not exactly analogous to Bernie Madoff no. because Bernie Madoff was a Ponzi scheme. This was sort of people feel duped by this person. And that is that's the analogy there. But there's part of a larger context here because you have Elon Musk yep. just kind of melting down with Twitter. Yep. You've got Mark Zuckerberg of what's happening now with Metaverse. And this is sort of is this the fall, at least a spotlight of something to do with this sort of billionaire it's genius of that maybe is not so genius. It's I like don't know. The billionaire trifecta fail with those three. And I guess the through line there is that maybe the Wonderkin geniuses don't actually know what they're doing, right? And or don't we, know everything. Or don't right? know everything, right? Or have or or have no brakes and now they're they're crashing their cars. I mean, you look at Elon Musk, for example. I mean, what is happening at Twitter? Is Twitter I mean he bought it and now you're already talking about bank what what is happening with Twitter? It's it's blowing up before our very eyes and he's got SpaceX and and he's got Tesla. Big questions about how stretched he is. I mean, he's riffing with randoms on uh, on Twitter, and this is the world's ri- richest man. You know, there's a re- resp- serious responsibility when you have shareholder money in some of his other endeavors, right? Um, and then you've got Mark Zuckerberg, who, um, again, another billionaire boy wonder, but his uh, company is the worst performer of the S&P 500. Stock is down 66% Oof. over the past year. This is a widely held stock. There are real mom and pop investors who are who are being hurt here. And there's the other question there is, does he really have the grownups around him? In all of these cases, do we just see, you know, stamp somebody with a billionaire status and think, oh my gosh, they're so smart. Look, you know, dropped out of college and created this company. Well, actually, you need to have regulation and restraint and, you know, vision. And I think we're starting starting to see that kind of unravel in those cases. The contrast, I think, would be Jeff Bezos. Listening to him today uh, on this show, here's somebody who stepped back. He's now, he's running the board, but he's running back, he, you know, step back from day-to-day operations with a bit of a vision. So I, I think he's kind of the grown-up in the billionaire bunch right now. But he has, his, as Poppy's points out, he, he's got issues when it comes to workers and unions, whatever. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously yeah. no company is perfect, but as Poppy has been pointing out as well, all those people losing their jobs at Twitter and at these social media companies, it's, it's I crazy. mean, to fire and then rehire at Twitter, to fire yeah. and then rehire, to try to roll out, you know, a blue check, you know, $8 a month and have to roll it back. It just looks so unfocused, undisciplined and just sloppy, right? I mean, I think we need more leaders like Christine Romans with restraint <laughs> and judgment and from Iowa. That's all I have to say. But about in the meantime, this. we'll just keep you around to talk about these federal probes and what's going to happen to some Oh my gosh, there's so much so going on. So well said this morning, Romans. Thank really you very much. Thanks, Switching gears soon, we will hear from President Biden after his bilateral meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. You'll see that live right here. And we're heading back out to the newly liberated city of Kherson as residents there get shipments of much needed aid after months of living under Russian control. These images just coming into CNN. More CNN this morning to come after the break. We have this new video just in this morning, and it shows residents in the newly liberated city of Kherson getting humanitarian aid. Days after the Russian troops were forced out, let's head back to Ukraine. Our Nick Robertson is on the ground there. Nick, it just must be remarkable to experience. 
It, it is. It's very remarkable. And, and it's remarkable because over the past few days, we've sort of witnessed this, um, uh, you, you know, euphoria, um, this excitement uh, and people coming out more and opening up more about what they've experienced and to see the first aid and it's happening just over here. Our cameraman Clayton filmed the pictures, filmed the pictures that you have there. Um, this truck uh, has been provided by a, a church here in Ukraine. They're the first to get in here, remembering that the government has had to demine some of the roads for the truck to get here. They've been handing out uh, Bibles. They were handing out candles, which will really be needed here at night. And I know that some people here will need that spiritual uplift from the Bibles as well. They've been through a terribly traumatic time of fearing every, every time they go out on the streets, they could be picked up and taken in and beaten. But they're getting bread and water as well. And these are basics for you and me and for most people around the world. Bread and water, we take it for granted here. It isn't. This is the first clean drinking water people will have had here for for about four or five days now. So this is important and, and it is going to help. Maybe you can hear that explosion going off there. Um, the Ukrainians still are firing out across the river here, just a few miles away, uh, where the Russian troops are still dug in. Nick Robertson, thank you very much again for being on the ground for that reporting. Well, Democrats have secured the Senate majority, but they still have their eyes on one more seat. Up next, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is going to join us live this morning. You don't want to miss that. committed to keeping the lines of communications open between you and me personally, but our governments across the board, because our two countries are, have uh, so much that we have an opportunity to deal with. A statesman should think about and know where to lead his country. He should also think about and know how to get along with other countries and the wider world. Good morning, everyone. It is Monday, November 14th. That is what's happening overseas. The president is traveling. That was President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping this morning in Bali, Indonesia at the G20 summit. The two leaders briefly spoke about what they hope to get out of the meeting. And we just learned that the meeting has just ended. So it lasted about three hours and in just a few minutes. President, President Joe Biden will answer questions from reporters on the high stakes sit down. We're going to take you there live. Also, a manhunt is underway this morning at the University of Virginia. This is after a gunman killed three people at the campus in Charlottesville. What police are now looking for? And Democrats officially locked down control of the Senate once again. Big wins in Arizona and Nevada. That means Chuck Schumer is going to remain the Senate Majority Leader. He is going to join us live in studio in just a few minutes to talk about how Democrats defied historical odds with that win. But first, let's go to the Magic Wall because there are key races that have still not been called when it comes to the House. Don? Yes, over at the Magic Wall with Mr. John Berman. John, hello. Good morning to you. Where do things stand right now? This is where things stand on right now in the House of Representatives. Republicans, we've called 212 races for them, 204 for Democrats. Mm -hmm. You need 218 to control the House of Representatives. So Republicans only need six more wins here. Democrats would need 14 these are the uncalled races right now. Let me show you where the uncalled races are 
The ones that have colors on them are uncalled. There are 19. Republicans lead in 10. Democrats lead in nine. If Democrats want to maintain control of the House, they have to flip five of these red seats to blue. I'll just write this number here. Five of these red districts would have to be blue. And right now, it's between California and Arizona, and Arizona is making Democrats' job very difficult, Mm -hmm. daunting, maybe next to impossible at this point. What happened overnight? There were new votes released here in Arizona's sixth county, and this looks close. It is close, but John Siscomani actually expanded his lead ever so much against Kirsten Angle in 93% reporting. The one that may be the dagger for Democrats is here, Arizona's first congressional district, where you see now David Schweikert, 894 votes ahead. Going into the weekend, it was the Democrat, Devin Hodge, who was mm-hmm. actually ahead by some 4,000 votes. But there have been vote releases in Maricopa County, which have now given the Republican the edge there, which brings it to where it is right now. Let me talk about while I'm talking about Arizona, because this is important. The governor's race. That's where I wanted to go. The governor's (laughs) race in Arizona has yet to be called. Right. Katie Hobbs is twenty six thousand votes ahead of Carrie Lake. I'm going to do some math here for you. There are. Hang on. Let me get this out of the way. There are. 175,000 votes remaining in Arizona, 175,000 votes. If Carrie Lake, the Republican, was able to win 57 percent, let's say call it 58 percent. If she was able to win 58 percent, question mark, she would net. And I have this written down here. She would net 27,200 votes. Okay, 27,200, which is more than 26,000. So her target is 58%. The problem, Don, for her, let me swipe this out, is that in the votes that have been released over the last day in Maricopa County here, she got 55%, Carrie Lake did. And in Pima County, we'll go down here, Pima County, she actually only got 40% Carrie Lake did. This is a Democratic plus 18 county. Carrie Lake got 40% there. There's some 40,000 votes left to count in Pima County here. I kept this up. So again, Carrie Lake needs, I'll put 58%, 58% of the remaining 175,000 votes. In Maricopa, the last count, she got 55. And in Pima County down here, only 40. It's a tall order for Carrie Lake right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's underperforming the percentage she needs. In order underperforming to, the percentage she out. would need to overtake Katie Hobbs. I want you to stick here with me, John, because joining us now is the latest from election director from Pima County, and that's Constance Hargrove. Pima County is Arizona's second most populous county and home to the city of Tucson. Thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, so how many votes left to count? We have about 40,000 votes left to count, about 38,000. And the question is, how long will it take to count those remaining ballots? We should be able to complete what we have um, in our office, which is about 35,000 by end of day on Tuesday. However, we have about 750 ballots that the recorder probably will not be able to turn over to us until maybe possibly Thursday. Um, because they have it until Thursday at 5 p.m. to cure those ballots mm-hmm. because of the holiday. You got a question? With no, that? I'm just okay. I'm looking at the number. You say about 40,000 left. So that would mean about 20,000 released today, 20,000 released tomorrow. Is that correct? 
that we've been able to process about 20,000 a day, so yes. And in terms of where in the county they're from, are, are they all mixed together roughly? We've seen, and again, I'm not telling you to tell me the percentage of Democrat or Republicans, but, but every day that's come back, it's been roughly 60-40 for you know, Katie Hobbs, Carrie Lake. Is there any reason to think they'd be coming from a different part of the county today and tomorrow than they have up until this point? Um, no. So basically what we're probably going to be counting now are ballots that were dropped off on election day and they were dropped off at our vote centers. Um, so they could go either way. Um, Katie Hobbs, of course, was still leading with the count yesterday, but it kind of flipped a little bit for um, Ingo and Siskamani. So um, Siskamani actually got more votes yesterday than um, Ingle did. Yeah. Since we're talking about Carrie Lake, I want to play this from Carrie Lake and get your response to it. Here it is. You know, I, I consider someone's vote their voice. I think of it as a sacred vote, and it's being trampled the way we run our elections in Arizona. I've been sounding the alarm for two years. Nothing got done. Very little got done last legislative session, and we need to get in there and restore faith in our elections. We can't be the laughing stock of elections anymore. We need people who are competent running our elections. This incompetency or maladministration is outrageous, and I think the the good thing is that more people are waking up to the fact that Arizona has real troubles when it comes to elections. What's your response, Ms. Hargrove? Well, in Arizona, it's a process. Um, it's a, a, a pretty slow process because um, we're trying to check every ballot and make sure that the information is accurate, um, make sure that we have the right ballot for the current election. And it's a process that's in place in Arizona um, to make the election secure. So um, I don't think that it's incompetence. I think that it is um, a manual process. And yes, we could probably change that process, but I don't think anybody is incompetent because it's going just a little bit slower than people expect. Constance Hargrove is the director of elections for Pima County. We thank you very much for that. John, we'll check back in with you shortly. Caitlin? Thanks, John. As we await the further results out of those states, Arizona and California, we do know what's happening in the Senate. CNN has projected Democrats will retain control of the Senate, defying GOP expectations of a red wave. Joining us now is Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, who won his reelection and is now set to become the New York's longest serving senator in his fifth term. Right. You are maintaining that title of Senate Majority Leader. You are facing historical odds where typically the president empowers party does not do well in the midterm elections. Inflation is as a high. Biden's approval rating is not. How did Democrats defy those expectations? I'd say there were three reasons that we defied all the expectations. First, we had great candidates. Our candidates cared about people, were effective, uh, talked directly to everyday Americans' concerns. And they ran against a whole bunch of flawed candidates who were interested in sort of tossing firebombs across the wall, but not really getting things done for average families. The second reason we won was our record of accomplishment. We had accomplished so much for average folks. They never thought we would be able to take on pharma and get prescription drug prices lower. They never thought we could do anything on climate change. We did the most effective thing we've ever done on climate change. And on difficult issues, even like guns, gun safety, we came together with Republicans on a bipartisan compromise and moved the ball forward for the first time in 30 years. So Democrats got a lot done. And to average voters, 
They care about that. I mean, I know there's a lot of sturm und drang here, uh, you know, every day when this allegation is thrown or that one, but they cared. But third, and maybe most important, the American people saw that democracy was at risk. They saw that there were these MAGA Republicans who denied the election. That's one of the fundamentals of a democracy. When you lose an election, you go, you don't say the election was a fraud and you call it off, who um, either uh, uh, ignored violence or even encouraged it when the MAGA Republicans did it. You know, the Republican leadership is to blame here because they didn't push back. The average American saw this. They saw that, you know, that autocracy was eroding the edge of our democracy. And we got votes from Republicans who said, this new MAGA Republican Party led by Trump is not the, I'm a Reagan Republican, I'm a Bush Republican, I'm not this type of Republican. And that made a huge difference as well. And if you look at finally at the closing arguments, say in Nevada, uh, one of the two closing arguments for Catherine Cortez Masto was uh, this idea that her opponent was an election denier and was not rebutting all these assaults on democracy. The second, of course, was choice, which was an important issue, both in itself. I mean, American people do not want to see rights eroded. My children, my daughters will have fewer rights than my wife or um, my yeah, mom really did under this. But it also showed how far right this Republican Party had moved and the Republican leadership was letting it happen. And we want to break down the GOP aspect of this with you, but but you have a lot to do. I know you're going back to Washington after this right interview. Now, in you you have a lot on your agenda. Are you going to talk to Mitch McConnell? What does that look like? Let me just say this. The, the American people are yearning for us to get things done. And the American people, first, they believe in democracy. I just want to finish that last point. The roots of democracy are much deeper than a lot of warriors, people who worried about the election give it credit for. And they understood democracy was being eroded. But they also are practical. They want us to get something done for them. They don't expect us to do everything at once, but they want us to get something done. And that's why I think so many of them chose Democrats over Republicans, because we were focusing on what they cared about and what they needed, as opposed to just sort of tossing these hand grenades across the wall. But I am going, so I will say to my party, we're not going to get everything we want. Like on the guns bill, we didn't get everything we want. But let's try to sit down with the Republicans and get something done. And even more, and just as importantly, I am going to say to the Republicans in the Senate, who are not the MAGA Republicans, stop letting them lead your party. Work with us to get things done. And I intend to sit down with Mitch McConnell and express that. And time? I think you've been are, saying wait, that. You've are, been wait, asking for it. Go on. Just sorry. quickly, when are you going to, you're sitting down with Mitch McConnell this week? No, I'm going to, I intend, I've said this yesterday and the day before too. Um, I intend to sit down with him and say, how can we, we should be working together. You're not going to get the extremists in your party to work with anybody, but the rest of us can work together and get them some real things done for the American people. And in answer to your question, Tom, you we got plenty in the, of the Do you think six, it's going to work this time? Well, in the last Senate, where we got so much credit in June, July, and August for getting so much done and it helped change the election around, five of those six bills were bipartisan. Mm -hmm. The guns bill was bipartisan. The bill to help our veterans who were exposed to the mm -hmm. toxic uh, toxins that came out of the burn pits was bipartisan. The most major industrial policy bill ever, or in very long time, the chips and science bill was bipartisan. 
We did most of our, I tried to do things in a bipartisan way, and we've had some Senator, success. I understand what you're we saying. We have to You've do had, more. You have had lots of success, but I'm wondering what is different. Do you think there's going to be a, um, it, what is going to be different this time with the MAGA Republicans? Because you said, you've said that before. Please work with us. Why is it different this time? Why it's do you different think this be time because they lost. They all expected to win. The red wave proved to be a red mirage. And one, if not the main reason, but one of the main reasons for sure, was that average American folks, even those in the middle, even those who tended to be Republican, said, I'm afraid of this MAGA. They're trying to ruin our democracy. It's not, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the results, House and Senate, the MAGA Republican way didn't work. The MAGA Republican candidates across the board, you just showed some of them, lost. Yeah. So if you're a good leader of a Republican party, you say continuing to follow them is a path to disaster. Just one more follow-up to that. Sure. Okay, so listen, the messaging. You know, people were very critical uh, of the messaging, as you saw in the media. And I've talked to a, a, a couple of folks in the Democratic Party this weekend, and they said, uh, one of them is advisor to president. He says, I was been um, uh, telling the POTUS the entire time that the streets were not saying what the polls were saying and that young people were coming out. They're also telling me that rather than having these big events and people were saying, well, the president's not going here and they're not going there, that you actually had Democrats in, in the trenches, in areas, working with people, talking about the accomplishments, asking them what exactly. they were going to do, and that the pundits point. and the media did not understand the strategy. Correct. If you would have looked at what actually was happening, as opposed to the day-to-day, -day, oh, what's the latest, you know, firebomb they're throwing over the wall, you would have seen just what you said, that we were talking to average people. You know what one of our most successful commercials and arguments was? Prescription drugs. We were getting the cost of prescription drugs lower. When you poll the American people over the last five, ten years, what's one of the number one or two or three things they want? Get the cost of those drugs down. We did it. We did it uh, in the IRA bill. When you talked about young people, I predicted the young people were going to vote for us. Why? We focused on climate, which they really care about, and we got more done for climate than ever in history. And we talked about student debt. And, you know, again, a lot of the pundits said, oh, blah, 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 blah. the young people, when I would, when I would go to, a, to a, a group of young people, when I would go to a black church, the number one thing I'd be asked yeah. is, I, what about student debt? We did something about fair, it. Fair, but now a federal judge has said yeah. you overstepped constitutionally, well, so let's see if it, no, but that, that matters okay, so for the millions give, of, of yeah. that matters for the millions of people who bet on this administration and the fact that you didn't do it legislatively, you did it through Maga executive Republican order. Republican judge, and what we have well, done, wait, let me just finish, in this Senate, is we passed a record amount of judges at the district court yes, where this judge was. And there has been a lot the, of movement on, and, and that's in why. The court, let me, and in the Court of Appeals to counterbalance these MAGA judges, which the public doesn't like. And now that we have the majority, We'll be able to keep doing it. So you'll like my next question because it's about the power that comes with the majority, which is critical, including, you know, confirming, nominating, right. confirming right. judges. Um, but you want 51. You don't just want 50. You want Georgia. So I just wonder what your message is to voters in Georgia this morning who may be feeling a little more at ease, Democratic voters, saying, we've got Arizona, Nevada. You yes. know, it's not a crisis for us now. What's your message to them? The message is who's going to best help Georgia? And Raphael Warnock is the person who will. Let's go over the record. First, he's a man of service. First in service, he uh, did his service as a member of the cloth. 
and was a great leader of one of the most famous pulpits in America, the Ebenezer Baptist Church. But second, when he got to the Senate, he got real things done for Georgia. I mentioned the cost of drugs. One of the things we have now for Medicare is a cap on insulin. Mm-hmm. $35 uh, is the cap. It used to cost people six, $700. Average families, working families who, had, who were older and had diabetes, what am I going to do? It's become six, $700. Black farmers for decades, maybe centuries, black farmers were neglected when they you know, gave out all the agricultural help and subsidies. He got $4 billion in the budget for it. The message that Raphael Warnock will have Mm -hmm. that will carry him to victory is he he can help Georgia much better uh, than anybody else. uh, To Poppy's question there, fear is a great motivator. And you don't have the fear that you're not going to win the Senate now, the majority. And so people may say, well, look, we have the majority. So to her question, so how how do you motivate people to come out who may feel like, oh, we don't have to because we've already well, won the Senate. If I believe that the kinds of things that Raphael Warnock is talking about that benefit Georgians are motivation. And this is how we did it, by the way. Well, we, we, we see the president we, come out, the former President Obama. Is, well, I mean, You know, I think this is a race that's a Georgia race. Uh, and I think that Raphael Warnock is the right guy for Georgia. He, he, another thing he helped work on is expand uh, health care benefits. Uh, ACA is now affecting millions more people, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Georgians, working class and others. And now it's cheaper and covers more people. Doing real, my argument, which has been all along, and as you said, the pundits and some of the others didn't go for it, but it prevailed, is actually making the government work for people. Even if you can't get everything you want, you get some of what you want, is what was the message, the message in this election, as well as no more of this assault on democracy. No more toleration of these really far, you know, people who don't believe in democracy and just want to win at any cost. I thought it was striking when uh, Speaker Pelosi told Anderson, our colleague, a few last week, she wants to see a strong Republican Party. When you talk about working together, meeting with McConnell, getting things done, do you also want to see a strong Republican Party? And what well, does that look like to you in the Senate? I want to see us get things done. We're going to not violate our principles. We never have and never will. Um, but the best way to get things done, as we showed this summer, is do what you can on a bipartisan basis, and we will. When you can't do it on a bipartisan basis, we try to do it on our own, and that was the IRA bill, which was a very significant bill, which had the prescription drugs. Republicans were not willing to go against pharma, which had climate. Republicans were not willing to go against the oil and gas industry. But what changed in reference to Don's question, maybe, I hope, and I'm willing to give it a chance, is they lost on going along with all this MAGA stuff. You didn't, mention, you didn't mention abortion in any of the things that Abortion is a key issue. I mentioned a little bit earlier at the very beginning. It was a key issue to so many, so many women. And even though, you know, it was high polling in the summer, and then if you look again at our closing arguments in many of the races where we won, including just Nevada... Abortion was one of the two top arguments we made. If people would look at sort of what messages we were sending out in our campaigning, as you mentioned, by knocking on the doors, but also in the commercials, they were a lot different than what you might have read in the newspaper day to day. Two quick questions for you, 
lightning round before we let you go. Lightning <laughs> round. Ooh. Every reporter in Washington I'm a Yankee fan. wants to know. <laughs> yeah, no. And um, New York Giants. More serious than that. But every reporter in Washington wants to know, are you going to extend the debt ceiling during okay. this lame duck it's period? Something, that's a very good question. Um, it's something we would like to do. It's best done on a bipartisan basis. I'm going to go back and talk to my caucus and the leadership on the other side of the aisle to see what we can get done. My last question. Does the outcome of what happened in the midterm elections strongly signify that Biden should run for re-election? Look, he'll make that decision himself. What do you if, think? He run, if he runs, I'll support him. I'll tell you, every Democrat I spoke to or been speaking to says that they believe Biden is going to run, that he should mm-hmm. run, and they want him to make that call and not they don't believe that they should be the ones to say it. As I said, if he wants to run, I will support him. I have a question, a question from uh, a very smart um, young lady, yes. an older lady, who said to me, says, why do Democrats, we're talking about messaging, why do yes. Democrats and you folks in the media you keep saying it's uh, democracies under you know, assault, an assault on democracy, why don't you say what it really is? An assault on America. Well, it is. Is that a more potent message you believe? Well, I think the two are sort of the same. America is the greatest democracy ever. When the founding fathers created our country, but branding they, called matters. It, they called it God's noble experiment. And it's an assault on democracy and America. I think most people tie the two together. Before you go, just on, on I'm going to add to Caitlin's a third on the lightning round quickly, because marriage <laughs> equality, you know, this matters to a lot of folks. Mm. And it's somewhere where it seems like you guys can get it done together. Yes. Do you have the votes? Will marriage well, equality get passed in the, in the okay. lame duck well, There's a great example of the bipartisanship we were talking about. So it passed the House, marriage yeah. equality. Unexpectedly, it got 35 Republican votes. That was great. So some people said, put it on the floor right away. But we didn't have it. We need 60, so you need 10 Republicans. We didn't have it. The two leaders that I appointed to help get this done... Uh, Tammy Baldwin, senator of Wisconsin, and Kirsten Sinema, uh, senator of Arizona, went and said, they've talked to Republicans, and if we wait till after the election, they will vote for it. And so instead of just having a show vote where we would lose, because I believe in getting things done is the most important thing, I said, I'll wait, and now we'll go back to our caucuses and see where we're at. But it's one of the things, it's, it's along with debt ceiling, and we have to fund the government. That's probably the most important, important thing. That'd be nice. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the most yeah. important things I'd like to get done this lame duck session. All right, yeah. All right. Senate Majority Leader yeah. Chuck Schumer. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Another, another has a beautiful wife. For you. I'm kidding. No <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Senate Majority Thank Leader you. Chuck Schumer. Appreciate Thank you, you for spending so much time with us. These are really important questions, and, it and was our fun. audience appreciates it. Thank you. It. Thank I enjoyed it and, early and uh, often. Thank you. Have a safe drive back to Washington. Thank Go you. Bills. Go Bills. Former Vice President. Go Vikings. What is going on here? All right. They did. All right. Former Vice President Mike Pence is calling out his former boss's actions on January 6th. There's a new interview that we will show you. Also, former First Lady Michelle Obama weighing in on President Biden's political future. There we go again. Do you hope that President Biden will run again in 2024? Her answer is next. And at any moment, President Biden will hold a significant news conference, take questions from reporters after this three-hour meeting with, for three hours with yeah. Xi Jinping. Just finished. We'll bring it to you live. Stay with CNN this morning. Are you so. watching the stuff unfolding in Ukraine? 
So the former Vice President Mike Pence is putting more distance between himself and his former boss, finally sharing his thoughts in a new interview on a tweet Trump sent out attacking Pence for not overturning the 2020 election, a tweet that he sent just minutes after rioters breached the Capitol on January 6th. Listen to this. 2.24 p.m., the president tweets Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. It angered me. But I turned to my daughter who was standing nearby and I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. And the former vice president is going to join Jake Tapper for a live CNN town hall Wednesday at 9 p.m. A growing number of Republicans are calling out Donald Trump, blaming him for the GOP's underwhelming midterm elections. Watch this. This should have been a huge red wave. It should have been one of the biggest red waves we've ever had. People who tried to relitigate the 2020 election and focused on conspiracy theories and uh, you know, talked about things the voters didn't care about. They were almost universally rejected. And I think it's, it's basically the third election in a row that Donald Trump has cost us uh, the race. And it's like, you know, three strikes, you're out. Well, do you think that's true? Because we've heard that after one strike and two strikes, to keep yeah. your analogy going. Well, you know, the uh, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different re result. And, you know, Donald Trump you know, kept saying, you know, we're going to be winning so much, we'll get tired of winning. I'm tired of losing. I mean, that's all he's done. Joining us this morning, CNN chief political correspondent, co-anchor of State of the Union, Dana Bash. Dana, I, th I texted Dana. you in real time. How <laughs> great did. the whole <laughs> right, loyal, loyal viewers. Thank you. <laughs> it was. I was like on the treadmill, and I was like, "This is such a great interview." I mean, the Hogan interview, the Pelosi interview. She just texted us about our Schumer interview. If you haven't read your text, <laughs> yes, we all do love each other, America. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where to look at you. Okay, but but let's just start on Larry Hogan because I think your follow-up to him was so perfect. He said three strikes you're out Trump and you're like are you sure which is what Maureen Dowd was saying yesterday too right in the New York Times yeah. she's like are we sure or is this going to reverse just like it has over and over again we've seen this movie before <clears throat> I mean this is what everybody thought in the hours and and maybe a couple of days after January 6th uh, even from Lindsey Graham to Kevin McCarthy himself on the floor of the House of Representatives signaling enough is enough. And then it changed. And M Kevin McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago, the sort of famous picture with their thumbs up. And they, instead of um, sort of taking the oxygen away from former President Trump, they gave him oxygen. Mm. And so it's a very, very big question. I don't think we know the answer yet, despite what Larry Hogan said. Mm. Uh, I mean, remember, the governor of Maryland has been very much against Trump and Trumpism, particularly election denialism, uh, consistently across the board. And he has, as I mentioned him, kind of been on an island in his party on that notion. So I honestly don't think we know, despite losing, we don't know whether or not Trump really is over in the party yet. 
Dana, this is what you do. So let me ask you, and I saw you this weekend. We were in a room with lots of different people from different political stripes, right? And a lot mm -hmm. of people talking about the subject that we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. And all of the, you know, billionaires, the big donors who are, no, you know, moving away from Donald Trump. But the question is, I mean, does it matter? He still has the people, for the most part, at least the loudest um, part of the electorate, the, the MAGA folks. I'm wondering if, if, it's, if that's going to make a difference because he can still get, you know, millions and millions of people to donate small amounts of money. Yep. And so is that going to really make a dent if, you know, the, the elites, so to speak, in the Republican mm -hmm. Party aren't really on his side? Well, it's one way you can look at it is elites if you're talking about big donors. The other way that the many people in the party are looking at it right now is uh, independents who are critical, who did help him win in 2016, uh, and uh, more kind of sort of what they call weak Republicans, Republicans who are uh, registered that way but tend to kind of swing back and forth. And the answer is, when you look at the general elections— uh, if, if Donald Trump were to get that far, uh, it could, definitely could hurt the Republican Party. I think you're, the question that you're asking is really the question, especially as we look to tomorrow and this big announcement that the former president is teasing, uh, whether he does actually go forward and announce that he is running for president, he does have a very strong, significant amount of support within the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. If you look at the exit polls, it kind of bears that out. There is, mm -hmm. even at the, the question of election denialism, there is that sort of 30% of the electorate, those who voted last week, who are with him on everything. Uh, if you just, again, look at it through the prism of, was Joe Biden fairly and freely elected? And so that could help him in a Republican primary, but it could also destroy them in a national uh, uh, general election. So that is what the Republican Party is grappling with right now. Yeah, especially after Tuesday night. And yeah. you just heard our interview with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. We asked about whether or not Biden is more empowered to run again in 2024. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, he, that's up to him, but he will support him if he does run. Michelle Obama also weighed in on this recently. This is a really interesting comment that she made. President Biden is a good friend of yours. How do you feel he's doing as president? I think he's doing a great job, but it's a tough job, and I think that he's doing the, the best he can under some tough circumstances. Do you hope that President Biden will run again in 2024? You know, I, 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 I will have to see. It's, you know, the, the reason I don't speak on that is because I know what it feels like to be on the other side of it. And I think that that's a personal decision that he and his family have to make. What'd you make of that answer? Very cautious. <laughs> you know, you can understand what she's saying is that she's been there, she's done that, and she is uh, personally very close. They, they know the Bidens so well after serving with them for, for eight years. Uh, but it certainly wasn't a full-throated, I think he needs to do what it takes to go and do everything possible because he's the only guy for the job. That wasn't what she said. And um, I, I, it, this is very, very, um, this is a very active debate going on. It's not just on the airwaves. There is an active debate going on within the Democratic Party. And it's kind of tough because people do love Joe Biden. 
And they do think, especially given what we've seen with the results of the midterms, that, you know, he's he's on the right course when it comes to policies. But there is concern uh, just to sort of talk about the elephant in the room about his age. We had uh, David Trone, who is a now a newly reelected member of Congress, very, very competitive uh, district in Maryland. We had him on over the weekend and he said, I love Joe Biden. I wish he were 30 years younger. And I think that kind of speaks mm-hmm. to where a lot of Democrats are. Mm-hmm. right. Don't now. you think he, and, she would be saying it if maybe Joe Biden had said it like, hey, I'm definitely going to run that she'd be like, yeah, great, go for it. Oh, 100%. 100%. Which is why she said, I'm going to kind of give them space. Yeah. Biden turns 80 a a week from yesterday. Dana Bash, great interviews yesterday. Thank you for joining us. Hey, this is the first time I've been able to be on your wonderful show. I feel honored. I know. It's weird, right? What? I know. Dana. Well, I'll be back tomorrow. They've been late. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been up kind of late. Oh, really? No, we hadn't noticed that, Dana. (laughs) Thank you, Dana. Great to see you. Love it. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Justin, we are now learning what happened during that three-hour meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping at the G20 summit. We are waiting for President Biden to take the podium. He'll be answering questions from reporters about that high-stakes meeting. In just moments, President Biden is going to field questions from reporters at the G20 summit after he just ended about a three-hour meeting, his first in-person meeting since taking office with Chinese President Xi Jinping. We are now getting a readout of what happened during that meeting. So joining us now from Bali is CNN senior White House correspondent Phil Mattingly, CNN White House correspondent MJ Leave, and live in Beijing, CNN international correspondent Selena Wang. Phil, I'm going to start with you. We are getting a readout from the White House. What are officials saying about what happened behind closed doors? Yeah, Caitlin, it is a lengthy readout and one that really goes into several different critical issues, both priorities for President Biden and the priorities uh, for President Xi, but also very clear objections that the U.S. side raised, as you noted, in a candid manner during this meeting. Now, the overall meeting, uh, they were behind closed doors, the two leaders and their teams, for just about three hours. As you noted, we're waiting for the president to come out and take questions here. But in that readout, the president uh, spoke candidly and directly, according to the readout, about a series of issues, including human rights issues, including U.S. objections to what was framed as more aggressive behavior when it comes to Taiwan and in the Taiwan Strait uh, specifically. But there were also areas laid out that I think are critical given the low state of affairs when it comes to this bilateral relationship, including the idea that both leaders uh, decided that they, their senior officials would be empowered to open up lines of communication. That is something that's been largely frozen over the course of the first two years of Biden's time in office. Also detailing areas where they think they can work together. And perhaps notably at the bottom of the statement on the issue of Ukraine, while it doesn't frame President Xi's uh, kind of reference point or where he stands on the overall issue of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they did say there was an agreement that nuclear weapons cannot be used and nuclear weapons should not be used in Ukraine. Implicit in that, obviously, is some of the threats we seen from President Putin. So we'll have to see how the president frames or if he's willing to characterize what President Xi's responses were to some of the direct objections raised by the U.S. or uh, when it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But the U.S. laying out a very detailed, to some degree, guys, path forward for a relationship that has been at a low point for several months, if not longer. Yeah. And MJ, a lot of those tough issues that Phil just noted there that Biden did bring up with President Xi is obviously notable. But 
It also seemed like so much of what the White House was trying to get out of this meeting was really just having an open line of communication there, being able to have this face-to-face conversation that they have not had because she has not left China uh, because of the pandemic. And so what are White House officials telling you about just establishing essentially a line of communication there between the two leaders? Well, Caitlin, just uh, keep in mind, first of all, that the readout that we just got, that Phil just ticked through in detail, that, of course, largely conveys President Biden's side of the conversation. What we don't know at this moment is how President Xi responded uh, to some of the more contentious parts of this conversation. Uh, For example, Taiwan, human rights concerns that the U.S. side raised, uh, economic practices that the U.S. sees as unfair. So we are going to have to see whether there ends up being a bit of a he said he said situation after both sides have really uh, come out with their sides of the story of how these conversations went down. Uh, But I think it is very important to remind everyone what U.S. officials before this summit said were the main goals going into this important meeting. They said, one, they want to make sure that the two leaders find areas of common uh, practice and agreement. And second, they said, as Caitlin, you noted they want to make sure that they can establish open lines of communication going forward. It is pretty clear, even just based on the U.S. side of this summit, the readout that we just talked about, that they probably did achieve both uh, of those objectives. So I think it is not, uh, you know, would, wouldn't be surprising if we ended up hearing from President Biden and other U.S. officials that broadly speaking, they did end up seeing this summit as a success. But I think, again, just really worth emphasizing, we are still waiting to get the Chinese side of things. And we'll see whether uh, they are pretty frank about what areas of the conversations ended up being contentious. But again, U.S. officials had said going into the summit, they would rather have contentious conversations than no conversations at all. Well, why don't we bring in now Selena uh, in Beijing for reactions there. Selena, I want to get your reaction and also um, this question, too, about um, climate change and what role it played. But reaction there. Well, look, there's still a muted reaction right now. And what's important is that China has heavily censored media and social media. We've been looking for any reaction. And in fact, they have censored the hashtag about this meeting on Chinese social media and have actually banned the comment section about this meeting. So very clearly at home, China really wants to manage and control the message at home. Very much China has been pushing this narrative that America is a hostile power that is trying to contain and suppress China. But what's notable is that internationally, we've seen from those opening statements from Xi Jinping a more conciliatory message towards the United States, towards the world. A positive sign is that we did see at least one point of agreement between the U.S. and China. In Xi Jinping's opening statement, he followed Biden's remarks saying that, look, China has a responsibility as a major global power to manage this relationship with the United States. They Mm -hmm. don't want this relationship to veer into a conflict. China can't afford to have instability right now. They've got major economic challenges here at home that have been compounded by the harsh zero COVID policy, but it's really hard for them to find any room to move forward here, even if it comes to something that they both need to work on, which is climate change, because there's so much hostility and distrust right now. How they move forward from here, the bar is low. It's just about keeping that line of communication open because global peace depends on it. And we're going to hear in just 
precious moments, right, uh, when they, the president steps up to the mic. It'll be fascinating to see what Biden says, because there is so much riding on this, even if there aren't these massive deliverables. We want Phil, MJ, and Selena, they're going to stand by to, to talk about all of this with us. Of course, we'll be waiting to see what President Biden himself says, that he got the sense of, of she as they were in that room together for right about on, three expected hours. expected to step up at any moment to, at this news conference in Bali, see the podium there, and folks are waiting for the president uh, of the United States to step up and give his comments. Also, back here in the United States, federal investigators are now looking into a deadly midair collision of World War II planes. This happened during an air show in Dallas. Did you see that video? Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Federal investigators are now looking into a fatal midair collision. This happened in Dallas. Two World War II-era military planes hit each other and crashed Saturday during an air show. Again, this happened in Dallas. All six people on these planes were killed. Our Ed Levendaire joins us live from there this morning. Ed, good morning. It's very, very sad. What are investigators looking at this morning? Well, they are trying to figure out exactly what happened, reaching out to whoever might have clues. So many witnesses on the ground as these vintage aircraft were crisscrossing the sky this weekend here in Dallas when the unimaginable happened before the eyes of thousands of people. A tragedy in the sky. Two World War II era military planes collided midair during the Wings Over Dallas air show, killing all six people on board the planes. The horrifying video footage shows the planes breaking apart midair, then hitting the ground and bursting into flames. One witness described the scene. It was just an awful feeling. And I, and then, of course, you saw that the, the big clouds of smoke, the black smoke that billowed up. The National Transportation Safety Board has an investigative team on site trying to determine how the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress and the Bell P-63 King Cobra crashed. The planes did not have a black box on board, leaving investigators relying on witnesses to come forward with photos and video. We don't have any uh, flight data recorder uh, um, data or cockpit voice recorders or anything like that. It'd be very critical to analyze the collision um, and also tie that in with the air traffic control recordings to uh, uh, determine uh, why the two aircraft collided. The B-17, the larger of the two planes, is a famous World War II aircraft most well known for the daylight bombing raids over Europe. The other plane was an extremely rare P-63 single-seat fighter plane. The two vintage planes were among only a handful of airworthy versions left flying worldwide. The Allied Pilots Association identified two B-17 crew members as Terry Barker and Len Root. Barker was a former city council member from Keller, Texas. Keller's mayor confirmed his death, writing in a Facebook post, even after retiring from serving on the city council and flying for American Airlines, his love for community was unmistakable. Major Curtis Rowe, a 30-plus year veteran of the Civil Air Patrol, was one of the crew members lost. The agency's commander wrote in a Facebook post, I reached to find solace in that when great aviators like Kurt Parrish, they do so, doing what they loved. To a great aviator, colleague, and auxiliary airman, farewell. 
So, Poppy, federal investigators will really lean on the air traffic control recordings that they can get their hands on. Also, talking to other pilots and uh, uh, who are in the air witnessing to kind of get any insight as to exactly how this could have happened. But, you know, Poppy, one of the more chilling moments uh, I saw this weekend in one of the videos uh, that was is out there is the voice of a young child asking his parents if this was supposed to happen mm. as the planes mm. burst into flames there in front of so many people watching. Just a really terrifying and confusing moment for so many of the people who were at this air show this weekend. So, so many people with their kids, I'm sure, as you note. Ed, thank you for the reporting. Our thoughts with all their families. We are still waiting for President Biden. He's about to take the podium and answer questions from reporters right here at the G20 in Bali. Stay with us. And uh, as you know, I'm committed to keeping the lines of communications open between you and me personally, but our governments across the board, because our two countries are, have uh, so much that we have an opportunity to deal with. A statesman should think about and know where to lead his country. He should also think about and know how to get along with other countries and the wider world. Two superpowers coming face to face for the first time since Biden took office today. Of course, that is that meeting that happened just ended a few moments ago between President Biden and President Xi. We are waiting for President Biden. He is expected to walk out any moment now to answer questions from reporters about what happened behind closed doors. It's really remarkable because this is the first time they are actually meeting in person. You know, they have spent a lot of time together when Biden was vice president. This is their first time since Biden has taken office. It's also interesting that Biden comes into this with the momentum from the midterms, right? And she comes into this with such a tight grip on power, right? And so you've got these two leaders feeling pretty powerful with very different views on really significant things coming face to face. Well, the question is, is that line of communication that Biden is touting there, if it's actually real or not, because they don't talk very often. And it has been suggested by at least one person on this program that perhaps um, oh, that the they, should speak, thing? Yeah, that yeah. they should speak every two weeks so that they could actually get something done. But is it is it real? Because, Caitlin, as you and I have spoken about, um, climate change is a huge issue for both men. Uh, being, you know, two of the largest countries uh, in the world and two of the largest emitters uh, of pollution in the world. And if they can, can they really talk about these things? And they don't actually discuss them. And so how, what does that mean for lines of communication? How real is yeah. that? Well, and that's a big one that has such major implications that they should be talking about it. But all of these other issues are clouding that. Taiwan, Taiwan technology, right. Ukraine. Um, all of these basically different visions of what the world order should look like. And she, and after he got that, that control, he, he's one of the most powerful Chinese presidents we've seen in our lifetimes. He talked about, he had a very different worldview of what the threat he sees from the United States. Oh, and yeah. that's been a big question of, you know, he's not, they don't th expect he's going to make any crazy headlines, but these officials in the United States are scrutinizing what he has said in these meetings so closely. Yeah. Small differences that are really big implications if you talk to U.S. officials. And really about sharing space um, in the world, um, as we uh, heard uh, just a little while ago. Was it David Sanger who was on? Yeah. From, uh, who wrote an, yeah. an, an op-ed about this or wrote an article about it saying this is really about sharing space and whether they can share and power. All, and, you know, as Tom Friedman was talking about Friday, autocracy versus, you know, 
democracy. democracy. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. We have been, which has been on the ballot. Uh, there as you we go. Just and of course, the, the Senate majority leader. One thing looming over this is this is the G20 summit. All these world leaders are gathered in Bali. Putin was initially supposed to be That's there. Right. He exactly. dropped out. He didn't go. It took some of the drama out of this meeting, but it's yeah. but it's really interesting. We're going to continue to follow, of course, live here on CNN. We thank you for watching CNN this morning. We hope that we would get you to the president here a little bit of it, but you won't. <laughs> you will get it. You won't miss it. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow morning. CNN special coverage continues right now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.